Hello and welcome back to Tabling the Podcast. My name is Ariana Karp and I am delighted to hand over the reins once again to our fierce and fearless Emma as we tackle Act 2 of Hamlet. Act 2, all Hamlet, all the time. Hey fam, here we're back in the work. So, um, Act 2 is shaped weird. Act two, two, one is about five pages and we get more Polonius and Ophelia life and get a little deeper into that story, into that family. And then two, two is the thousand pages and it's all one scene, but really it's like many scenelets of people kind of French scening in and out. And so we get a little Cornelius Voltamond land we get Rosengild's introductions as characters, more Claudius Gertrude. Something that struck me, and then I'll shut up and we'll just work, is that, um, you know, we spent so much time talking about the supernatural and kind of dealing with that cast of characters in Act One. And a bunch of the people who were important to us in Act One aren't even here. Marcellus isn't here. Horatio isn't here. We're in like a sort of different zone here. And then we get new people as we kind of move into this court space. So it's interesting. We have slightly different, slightly evolving concerns in Act Two. Here we are at the top of Act Two with Polonius and his man, Ronaldo, a character often cut. So I'm excited to meet his man, Ronaldo, here in this moment. Fabulous. If you are ready, Andrea and Colin, why don't we kick it in and then see how we go? Great. Give him this money and these notes, Ronaldo. I will, my lord. You shall do marvelous wisely good Ronaldo, before you visit him, uh, to make inquire of his behavior. My lord, I did intend it. Mary, well said, very well said. Look you, uh, sir, inquire me first what danskers are in Paris and how and who, by what means, where they keep, what company, at what expense, and, and finding uh, by this encompassment and drift of question uh, that they do know my son, uh, come you more nearer than your particular demands will touch it. Uh, take you as toward some distant knowledge of him, and thus I know his father and his friends, and in part him. Uh, do you mark this, Ronaldo? Uh, very well, my lord. Uh, and impart him, uh, but, you may say, <clears throat> not well, uh, but if it be he, uh, he is very wild, addicted, <laughs> so, so, and they put on him what forgeries you please. A merry none so rank as may dishonor him. Take heed of that. As gaming, my lord. Aye, or drinking, fencing, swearing, quarreling, drabbing. You may go so far. My lord, that would dishonor him. Oh, faith. No, as, as you may season it in the charge, you must not put on another scandal on him that he is open to inconsistency. That's not my meaning. Uh, but breathe his faults so quaintly that they may seem the tains of liberty, the flash and outbreak of a fiery mind, of general assault. See you now. Your bait of falsehood, take this carp of truth. By indirections, find direction out. So by my former lecture and advice shall you, my son. You have me, have you not? My lord, I have. God be with you. Fare you well. Good, my lord. Okay, let's pause there for a second before we get Ophelia in this mix. 
Polonius spies on his kids. Yeah, um, okay, yeah, let's- As what good father doesn't? I yeah. mean, yeah, but do you send a spy to France to try and get to know who your kid is hanging out with? <laughs> and also to be like, by the way, my kid's kind of a piece of shit. Maybe stay away from him. I mean, uh, one of my questions, if we were like doing this scene, if we were like staging this scene would be like, so Ronaldo, do you leave the scene more sure about what you're supposed to do or less? <laughs> you know what I mean? Because it's the, the over explaining and yet the sort of um, conspiratorial tone that Polonius takes with him is so funny. It, and obviously this scene is often cut. So I kind of wondered what you guys make of it, of course, but also Isabel, if you have any thoughts about like, what is juicy about it? Why do we leave it in? Besides the fact that it is quite funny as you know, Alan just demonstrated that, that Polonius meddles in this particular way. Like, is there also information from that in it that we like need in the play? Yeah, I mean, I understand why this scene gets cut. <laughs> um, and this is a reduced version of this scene as well. This is not in, in its full glory. But I mean, as we were talking about with act one and uh, you know, as Colin also pointed out, like Polonius is a good politician and this scene adds ammunition to the fact that Polonius is a good politician. And then something and like, if, if you want to go like on like a, themes of the play uh, spying is one of them spying and truth um and everyone's sort of on their own individual quest for truth hamlet's being the most important in the play and so spying is a means to kind of find out truth and so that's kind of happening here as well as character development about laertes i don't oh, know yeah. why it's so important that we know <laughs> that laertes is a fuck boy but it is just all of the different ways when Ronaldo's like so gaming and Polonius is like, yeah, or drinking or like hard drugs, prostitution, uh, like any of the other shit. Like it's yeah. just like this is, you- this is Polonius's version of that scene in Ever After where Adelica Houston like pays him and she's like, and whatever else, other little tidbits you can pick up along the way. That's Ronaldo. That- I'm I sorry, that is, that is a deep cut and you are so right. Totally, totally. That is so funny. Uh, I wonder, you know, Colin and Colin Andre, of course, playing the scene, but also Olivia as uh, Laertes in absentia, since you're in France, I sort of assume Paris, but France, uh, at this moment, um, any thoughts about uh, who you're hanging out with and what information is being given to us about Laertes here? Hey, I... I mean, it's obviously like funny and kind of silly to a degree, but you know, and, and ridiculous to a, to a degree as well. But <laughs> I, I don't, I don't love it as a method of setting up the fact that like Laertes is uh, fires on a different set of cylinders than Hamlet. But it is helpful as an establishment of the fact that Laertes fires on a different set of cylinders than Hamlet. Are you are you balking at the hilarity of the way that that is expressed, or are you? Are you denying being a fuckboy? <laughs> oh no, I won't okay. deny it. But but Thank yes, you. The, the I just wanted that on a permanent record. Oh yeah, I won't deny that I am a fuckboy. Um, okay. Yeah, I um, and hey, like as we'll, as we'll see later, of course, uh, I think it's all just uh, fodder for the way. Even at, when they meet again, Hamlet and Laertes, the, there is a cerebral 
again, I, set of cylinders that one of them is firing on and a more physical and emotional set that the other one is firing on. I think it all kind of adds to it. For sure, for sure. Something that you just kind of made me think of is like, that's the difference between Hamlet and Laertes. The sort of symmetry of sons, because obviously we've talked about fathers a lot, but also like, this is another son in the play. And the symmetry between Hamlet and Laertes is really interesting because obviously like, you're going to end up in a, in a duel to the death with each other. <laughs> so I don't know. There's something, um, it occurred to me listening to, a couple of things occurred to me actually re-Laertes, which is, even though this is a shady thing to do to your kid, Polonius is a really caring father. This is, this is like an expression of care, even if it's like behind your back and kind of shady, you know, of like keeping him out of trouble is sort of an expression of care. And if you were like a state official or something like Polonius, maybe that's how you would express it. But I think it's interesting to read it in that way. And also the fact that you aren't a prince and don't have the same set of worries. I mean, it's interesting because you're the person who earlier in the play was like, listen, Ophelia, his life isn't his own. He doesn't get to do what he wants. Like you're you're the inverse in the sense that you do get to do what you want, i.e. this guy fucks and has a good time because he doesn't have the responsibilities of like one day becoming a head of state. Right. Oh no, Isabel, I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. Um, what's interesting though, is that he does have that pressure because all these positions are elected. And the mm. assumption there is that, and, and, and there's, this, there's this moment, which is really unclear unless you like actually have like some uh, annoying historical background on, on, on this play, when uh, Laertes comes back from France and he's like, where's my sister? Where's my <laughs> father? And the, and, the, and the concern that the messenger reports on is that the people are crying Laertes. The people are rallying around Laertes. It's right. because they want to overthrow Claudius at this point and elect Laertes Laertes and put him on the throne. So I think it's really interesting that in the in the juxtaposition between Laertes and Hamlet as well, Hamlet is never popular enough to get the people's support for whatever mm. reason. And Laertes is. And I think that, that that says a lot about his temperament as well. Mm. Like he's probably a little more outgoing and a little bit easier to talk to, whereas I bet Hamlet is kind of always in his own head and maybe a little harder to have a normal conversation with, which, mm -hmm. you know, I would respond positively to, but. As a leader, <laughs> in a leader. Yeah, yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, I have, d I have deeper questions about that, but I actually think I may save them. Same, yeah, I, I, even with like the jokes in the chat about like, obviously the very easy ways that we could, and like, <laughs> I, I agree, like it's really easy to make Laertes to use a very loaded phrase for this play, the bad guy. But I know that you're pro you're very pro Laertes, which is part of why it's exciting that you're here being pro Laertes. Oh yeah. And I and I do want to say more, but I know maybe we I, I'm like, ah, maybe we should save save it. Obviously, there's a lot of bad fucked up people and bad fucked up families in the play, but I do for now want to defend the openness, I'll say, with which Laertes operates as an individual. I think I also, that's a good word. Yeah. I also want to say, like, I feel like this this scene for me, like, kind of puts Laertes and Hamlet as equals in such a way, because, like, this the scene that immediately follows this is Hamlet's father, mm -hmm. um, you know, his his stepfather, basically asking his friends to spy on him too. So it's sort of like, you know, even though, like, this act. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's it's this thing of like both of their families don't trust them <laughs> and are like manipulative and weird, but. I think also I the fact more. that oh, I'm so sorry. 
Oh no, you you go, please, by all means. All right, I was just gonna say I find one more layer of of adding in the the players coming in to this of I guess Polonius's political nature of understanding people's disposition. I think he also recognizes pe- changes in people's disposition as recognized by, you know, him, his theory about Hamlet, which he's not completely wrong, you know, by the way, he's not right, but he's not completely wrong. Um, and watching Ophelia and that, you know, this layer of acting or performing potentially, as we said, is, is Hamlet just putting on this sad boy act either, you know, it's like, how calculated is it? You know, and as we just said, Polonius is real, kind of go-to is saying let's spy on him you know let's see what he's like when he's alone and then we'll know the answer you know and so like he has some sort of sense of psychology mm-hmm. there and so he does I think kind of just scene wise its importance and kind of why it's there it's just you see the trigger you see problem spy on it we'll solve the answer and <laughs> I'm a smart guy you know and like that's how we'll solve it and I think you know to boil it down to that that's kind of problem uh, spy on the problem, problem spy then, on it. Figure yeah. it out. And then we'll see how to solve the problem. <laughs> yeah. well, it's like um, it's Isabel was, oh, sorry. No, no, go for it. Go for it. It was like how Isabel was saying in the last episode, like he didn't get here. He didn't get into this position being like a bumbling fool. Like he knows what he's doing. He knows his shit. And I just, I just wanted to add, I like that this scene to me also is just like, he knows his kids. Like yeah. he, he knows, he knows them so well. And it again, sort of pulls in that like, and it's just, to me, it's this protective yeah. layer too yeah. of like mm-hmm. sending somebody out to make sure he doesn't fuck it up too much. Like, let him drink, let him have fun, but like, don't sell our secrets, boy. Like, you know, <laughs> I don't, there's a lot of there's yeah. layers to it that's like, yeah, okay, but but I think recognizing he is what he is, and I love it, and just like check on him. Yeah, Polonius is Chris. Chris Kardashian confirmed. Yeah. <laughs> well, he's yeah. like, but, but smile, like, but smile. <laughs> but like, if it's true that Laertes is that much of a public figure already, yeah, like, why wouldn't he? It's protection. Yo, yeah. like, make sure my kid is okay. And also not well. like embarrassing the family abroad, you know, that thing of like, by all means, have a good time, but. <laughs> but also like, keep it chill, keep it on the down low, you know. Now. We- Wait, I have a real quick, just because yeah. we're talking about like the parallels between them. And I don't know that I've ever actually seen a production that puts Laertes in any sort of front and center no. place. Like he's there, he leaves, he comes back and he's the one that kills Hamlet, but it's not really like, <laughs> like the villain is always Claudius as, as well he should be. But it's interesting to think about how different a production would be if they do play up those parallels and knowing the thing about the elections, which I didn't know before and had completely forgotten already, it's because you hear always Hamlet as being like the successor to the throne. Mm -hmm. But if it is elections and if Laertes is already more popular and does at one point in the play become poised to become the king, I think there's like an entirely different interpretation of the play that can be had within that. And I, I adds to like Claudius's nefariousness in in a allowing Laertes to go, whereas needing Hamlet to stay, and then at when Laertes come back comes back in being the one that goads him into killing Hamlet. So it's not just that he picked a random dude to kill Hamlet and get rid of his problem; it's that he True. picked Laertes who could usurp him as king. 
totally. That's sneaky as hell. Yeah. That's why he's I mean, so eager for Laertes to leave to go to, to France in the first place, too. Because yeah. because Claudius is also a very good political operative. And I would also argue that perhaps Claudius is not the villain that we all think he is. We can talk about that later. <laughs> it also makes the sort of, if Hamlet Sr. was as popular as sort of we think he probably was, it sort of makes this, you know, he, he would have, if he had been like, you guys should vote for my son next time, it would have been, you know, a different situation. It just adds another layer of antagonism. Yeah. yeah. And it's also like, obviously Polonius is grooming Laertes to a certain extent in a way that I don't think Hamlet's dad ever did, or like at least took the same care in terms of um, political operation and placing him in a, in a way that would further his rule. Yeah. Now I want to move on and get Ophelia in here. That's all super helpful. My only question about text so far uh, that I want to touch before I forget. Isabel, do you want to quickly clarify for me in this Polonius speech on page 41, the the strike through of a savageness and unreclaimed blood and then the asterisk at of general assault? What's going on there? Yes. This, this answer is really much about the production that Utah shakes. Okay. There was a text insertion there. Where there was three... a text insertion. Okay. Yes. And so is it meant to read the flash and outbreak of a fiery mind, a savageness and unreclaimed blood of general assault? Or is that, are we, would you advocate for us to keep the line read or to, to omit it? I would, I would omit it. I would, would, I would read it, it okay. as written with this. Okay, part. great. Yeah. Okay, great. Just making sure. Fabulous. Okay. Okay. Ronaldo, go spy on Laertes. <laughs> Take a nice trip to France, all expenses paid, we hope. And let's get, if you could just kick it in, Andrea, from how now, now, is that, sorry, how now, Ophelia, what's the matter? Is that Ronaldo or should that be Polonius? There's Polonius, right? That's Polonius. Thanks. Yeah, that's a, that's a mistake. Just double checking. Well, I was like, for a second, I was like, is this Ronaldo like passing Ophelia in the doorway? And then like, it's sort of... <laughs> Are they all friends? That's what I envisioned. Way too much character, I think. (laughs) What's up? It's just like, for a second, I was like, is this Ronaldo going, Ophelia, what's up, girl? (laughs) If only. That's a great play in itself. I love it. Just give that. Just, I'm all for reallocating text to make random people feel more important. Well, I think we should really play up the love triangle between um, Ronaldo, Hamlet, and Ophelia. Listen. It's a full triangle, too. Yeah, it is. It's the unsung. It's the untold story. Okay, then Polonius, if you want to kick it in from how now, Ophelia, what's the matter? How now, Ophelia, what's the matter? Oh, my lord, my lord, I have been so afraided. With what? In the name of God? My lord, as I was sewing in my closet, Lord Hamlet with his doublet all embraced, pale as his shirt, his knees knocking each other, and with a look so piteous in purport as if he had been lucid out of hell to speak of horrors, he comes before me. Mad for thy love. My lord, I do not know, but truly I do fear it. What said he? He took me by the wrist and held me hard. Then he goes to the length of all his arm, and with his other hand thus o'er his brow, he falls to such perusal of my face as he would draw it. Long stayed he so, at last a little shaking of mine arm, and thrice his head thus waving up and down, he raised a sigh so piteous and profound as it did seem to shatter all his bulk and end his being. That done, he lets me go. And with his head over his shoulder turned, he seemed to find his way without his eyes. 
for out of doors he went without their helps, and to the last bended their light on me. Come, go with me, I will go seek the king. This is the very ecstasy of love whose violent property fordoes itself and leads the will to desperate undertaking as oft as any passion under heaven that does afflict our natures. I am sorry. What? Have you given him any words of late? No, my good lord, but as you did command, I did repel his letters and denied his access to me. That hath made him mad. I am sorry that with better heed and judgment I had not coded him. I fear he did but trifle and meant to rack thee. Come, we go to the king. This must be known, which, being kept close, might move more grief to hide than hate to utter love. Come. Oof. Okay. It is, there's so many interesting things about that. One of the things that I think is most sort of elusive and mysterious about Hamlet and Ophelia and why I feel like productions often almost get it and then sort of don't is that we meet them at the end of their relationship. And the only thing that's in the play is the breakup in order to retroactively project the relationship. All that we can do is sort of, there's so much information in how quickly, you know, when she comes in, as soon as, soon as we get this text, the, the fact that the first place Polonius goes is mad for thy love. You know, and the fact that, and as you go through the text at the end, it just really struck me a bunch of different things about like, those I'm sorry's really hit my ear, Colin. And I think it's because you played them really warmly. And also because we've been building this picture of Polonius as a really good father. And I, the more we sit in it, the more I'm like, yes, that is fucking textually supported. You know what I mean? And the thing of, but the def, the care of Ophelia in that of like, fuck, I should have stepped in earlier and taken better care of this. I'm sorry that we didn't deal with it. And you say it twice. That really, really hit my ear. I don't know. Something about the thing of like, I'm sorry that, you know, I made you break up with him by ghosting him essentially. And now we have to take this matter all the way up the chain. And like you have, it just really struck me in that moment hearing it, Colin, that you have to really believe that this is the issue. I think I do. I think, like I said, yeah. I think the affect, I think he's really, really good at reading people, noticing these, these changes or differences. And like we said, I think he, mm -hmm. he understands Ophelia's, you know, that, that, that tug, that kind of tension on her back that like, mm -hmm. you know, kind of not wanting, but wanting and, and feel, uh, you know, and, and all of the, the brain things going on there. And I mm. think like you said, and, and his protection of, of his kids. And I think his biggest thing, is, and especially at that time is, is, you know, yeah. their honor and this, and, and it's brought up right in the beginning of the play, you know, yeah. that this is the question here. But I do find it very quick that he goes, it, you know, that must have drove him crazy, you know, and I think, uh, you know, and, and he knows the he knows everything else that could have drove him crazy, which which I think, you know, I was I was struggling to justify that as somebody who's really smart of like looking, mm -hmm. OK, this kid is dad is dead especially if I've have my kids that I love this much. Like how is, how right. is, okay, the dead, the dad's dead. Like that's the issue. It's so obvious, yeah. you know, and I, and I, I, I struggle with Polonius's kind of wit to know that, but I think his, the love for his daughter yeah. and kind of is his bright eyed bushy tail. Like she is my life 
it, it makes total sense that somebody not receiving her love would would lose their mind, you know? And I think that's kind of how quickly I think he mm. makes those juxtapositions there, you know? And like uh, Hamlet, like Hamlet just made it about that because mm. he came in to you, like grabbed her by like physically hurt her, intimidated her. Like the description of what happened is so striking to me. And I always forget that it's this intense Yeah, because it's wild. It is like the, um, like his head waving up and down. He raised a sigh so piteous and profound as it did seem to shatter all his bulk and end his being. Yeah. Like he's literally like howling. It's, I mean, it's terrifying, like the thing that she describes. And it is so, I mean, I love characters like this that turn into sort of glorified messengers. Like it's why <laughs> I love, it's why I love like Oliver and As You Like It, like those yeah. type of characters who come in and have to tell this big story of like this crazy shit that just happened. Yeah. Um, and it's really hard because the, but the language is so intense and like high stakes. So yeah, I, I think it makes sense because it is, this just happened to his kid. You know? It's so visceral, Zoe, that you you drew our attention just now to the thing that I that I have never heard uh, the the text about the grabbing the arm so clearly as you know as just now that text that she has about you know like about how he grabbed me hard and yeah he took me by the wrist and held me hard. Your sort of landing on that word, I was like, ooh. Okay. And then the thing is, this something I had sort of never, never really took in on a visceral level is that that happens at the beginning of this, the thing you're describing. And then all of the rest of this staring into your face like he would draw it. And then again, the arm, a little shaking of my arm. And thrice his head thus waving up and down, grabs, stares, shakes and whatever this like sigh or howl is or whatever and then let's go it's a really physical encounter I, yeah. I think there's also a lot of questions raised from this scene because it is simply reported on and we don't see it and Shakespeare yeah. could easily have written this scene and this this speech there's a version of this speech in all versions of Hamlet so it's not you know it's important to Shakespeare's plot and so the scene that Ophelia describes is so on the nose performance of madness performance of melancholy that it it, it kind of the question is, you know, is Hamlet performing this at Ophelia? And there's sort of a radical interpretation of the play, which is harder to support textually, but easier if, if you bring in the nunnery scene, which is that Ophelia is in on this and she is lying to her father on behalf of Hamlet. <laughs> but, but that takes a little bit of gymnastics and a, a, a really a lot of staging to kind of make that clear. Yeah. Um, but it does give Ophelia more agency, which is, you know, nice. But I will say that I worked on a production right, that so. uh, went with that assumption and it worked really well. And the mm -hmm. text felt like it supported it, even though, you know, it was it was choices <laughs> that we were making. Yeah. And I've seen that choice. I think the Benedict Cumberbatch one did, made that choice as well. Like they put a little scene in before this scene where you see like Hamlet and Ophelia, you know, in cahoots planning this out. And I understand that, too. I feel like it loses a little bit of I don't know. I mean, the reason I think it makes sense is because then you see Hamlet sort of going back to his more 
even his relationship with Ophelia later sort of comes back down. Like they're sort of interacting a little normally yeah. for this to have happened. But at the same time, I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm very torn about that choice. I'm not sure. Like, there's, which way there's no right answer. Go with it. Yeah. It's also, I also feel like it's interesting. You know, we've talked a little bit about the ways that Hamlet is gendered, and especially in the ways that he does it sort of in a derogatory way to himself. And it's just interesting, I think, in this instance, because there's also something about Hamlet's sort of like destructive masculinity. Yeah. And like, uh, especially in this way, you know, we're seeing himself as like this sort of like masculine hero in the way that he takes on this burden solely upon himself, pushing others away. His inability to confide in other people or like share that emotional burden feels like an interesting part of that destructive aspect of him in this play. Yeah, I I think that's important. I think that's important. I'm. I, it's interesting. I'm not sure I ever have actually seen an interpretation that tries to sell Ophelia being in on it there too. And I don't know. I mean, this is just me. So I haven't sat with it long enough to really to really know. But my gut impulse is that that feels a little solvy to me. You know, like that it feels a little bit like it it band aids the issues of the play by trying to bridge something that actually is richer ambiguous but partly for the reason that Harrison just just said of the thing of like some of the gender dynamics are are complicated and violent and the play sort of needs them to stay that way I would also just add that there there is something important I mean maybe this is just looking ahead a little bit too much but there is something important about the fact that Ophelia does go mad yeah and that (laughs) there is something almost that connects back to the players somehow about feigning something then becoming reality. And if, if you're seeing something feigned and then you start imitating it and it becomes real for you, like we've gone to a whole nother realm of kind of whose reality is, is here. And then also to just add just one thing about the sort of violence. Cause I, I really felt it Zoe when you were reading it, yeah. that, you know, just to use like a term from intimacy direction, this is like holding touching someone on the shoulder for a second is a very different feeling than touching someone on the shoulder for like five seconds and not I mean just something as simple as the length of contact makes a huge difference for the like vibe of the interaction and so this idea like the fact that she talks about how long it is it's like prolonged it's just really really visceral the imagination totally I think also it's like I think the the you know, the interpretation that Isabel was talking about is really interesting. Um, but I will say, like, having just heard, you know, the ghost scene with, uh, you know, Hamlet saying, I'll, I'll wipe away all trivial fond records, like, ev- like, I'll wipe away my youth, like, I'll wipe away everything that's not this. It does feel like, okay, so like, one of the, like, I have to get rid of all my attachments. So like, that means I have to break up with my girlfriend, you know, and like, it, it feels you know, this is all, you know, purely like timeline conjecture and doesn't really serve, but like the idea of being like coming off of this experience and being like, I both want to share this with my partner, but also know that like, this is, this is now like my burden, the intensity of that experience you can imagine like leading to a weird, insane, toxic, like interaction of, of, Mm. you know, that, that communication barrier to me seems it, it makes sense given what he just said in the previous scene and it sort of turns it into this like 
it or it emphasizes the sort of like Greek tragedy of it all that he's yeah. like I have to take this on myself little does he know that that will destroy literally everyone in this play like yeah. it's just like the snowball is rolling already and by him trying to cut ties he's involving people more well well if I can jump on that real really quick and I know I know we got to move on but like I think what's interesting about what you guys just said is that like and this is very informed by the character that I'm playing. I, I really want to call attention to and bring into the space the amount of like direct or slightly indirect like actual death that Hamlet himself causes over the course of this play. I mean, like, even Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, he's like, and the thing is like, is it a snowball? Yes. Then part of me, I'm like, no, it's not a snowball. He, he's, he stabs Polonius to death, realizes it's Polonius, and then is like, I took thee for thy better. Is it a snowball or is it something that he himself, and this is a question for Julia as we continue, like the snowballness of it versus the cold consciousness of the causing of these steps. I don't know. I'm thinking about it a lot based on what Harrison said as well. And I think it's something for us to talk about as we go. There is an ongoing toxic masculinity ruins the party again element to, to all of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. I also just real quick, because it's something I never considered before, what Julia just said, timeline wise, is this interaction that Ophelia is describing directly after Hamlet has just had a literal conversation with his father's ghost? Because maybe the, com the, the interaction that Hamlet was trying to have with Ophelia was, I just saw my dad's ghost. This is what he told me. And it could have been like just going into this is fucking nuts. Like this is the world we live in now and not being able to express that because if you say that out loud, you are going to be committed. You're a crazy person. I think that there is, I think that the can of worms we've opened is a big one and is useful to have open as we move on, which is from now onward, we have to ask every time Hamlet does something gnarly, whether or not this is a, a genuine action born out of his emotional state or in some way put on like or or in some way a performance and for whom and the blur between those things is I think intentional <laughs> but the playwright is good enough uh you know I mean the thing is like I think that this is the, this very question is what we're meant to be asking of is that real or is that pretend because the people that Hamlet told that he was going to put on this pretense and then swore to secrecy are not in this act no one else who knows the truth is here so now what we've decided at the end of act one is rippling into all these other relationships in act two. And I think this question is what we're meant to be asking. So we have opened a gnarly can of worms, but I am also happy that we've taken the time to appreciate however it's met, however, whatever the answer is, how its effect has played onto Ophelia, because that's the sort of, you know, impact versus intention thing of like, it doesn't matter how Hamlet meant it or really through which branch it is coming you know what I mean what matters is that Ophelia has received this as shock and violence not to put words into your mouth Zoe but it's been a visceral experience and so now she's moving forward with that and Polonius's concern is all genuine and I think that Colin your work to to track that psychologically makes a lot of sense so let's move forward into 2-2, which is also a doozy. So let's crank forward and get back to Claudius Town as we meet Rosengild. On a very practical mm -hmm. note, 
timeline stuff. Um, I do think that there has been a lapse of time between the end of Act One and now, probably at least a month, because um, the news of Hamlet's uh, lunacy has spread enough that in the next scene Polonius is going to talk about it and then uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern have had enough time to travel from Germany into Elsinore which if you kept like the river boat there was a river and you could kind of like take a boat and it took about a month to receive news and travel yeah uh, to receive summons and travel yeah that's true that's helpful um okay rock on Claudius kick it in welcome dear Rosencrantz and Guildenstern Moreover, that we much did long to see you, the need we have to use you did provoke our hasty sending. Something if you heard of Hamlet's transformation. So call it, Sith, nor the exterior, nor the inward man, resembles that it was. What it should be more than his father's death that thus hath put him so much from the understanding of himself I cannot dream of. I entreat you both that being of so young days brought up with him, that you vouchsafe your rest here in our court some little time. So by your companies to draw him onto pleasures and to gather whether aught to us unknown afflicts him thus that opened lies within our remedy. Good gentlemen, he hath much talked of you, and sure I am, two men there is not living to whom he more adheres. If it will please you, then, to expend your time with us a while for the supply and profit of our hope, your visitation shall receive such thanks as fits a king's remembrance. Both your majesties might by the sovereign power you have of us put your dread pleasures more into command than to entreaty. But we both obey and here give up ourselves in the full bend to lay our service freely at your feet to be commanded. Thanks, Rosencrantz and gentle Guildenstern. Thanks, Guildenstern and gentle Rosencrantz. And I beseech you instantly to visit my too much changed son. Heavens make our presence and our practices pleasant and helpful to him. I amen. Okay, tiny pause, tiny pause. Suddenly, speaking of temperatures changing, you know, where it's like suddenly things are weird. <laughs> you know? Just imagine a tuba playing in the background of just like, don't be, don't be, don't be, don't be. Here they come. Um, so there's a lot of biographical information. Yeah, it's so, that's so, so helpful because right after Isabel was like, time has passed, probably a month. And then Claudius kicks in with this thing of like, yeah, nobody even recognizes him now. He's like a totally different person. And we're like, oh yeah, it definitely has to have been more than like a day. <laughs> it's just amazing how as soon as you have a question, Shakespeare's like, no, we're taking care of it. Um, also, also um, some biographical information from your young days brought up together. So childhood friends, not school friends, you know? It's always interesting to me that I think people think of Horatio and Rosengild sort of in the same breath as like these friends that are kind of all friends and sort of collect at Elsinore during this play. But actually Horatio is like a totally different branch and Rosengild are their own thing. From your young days brought up together, here you are. Something about the way you hit it, Patrick. And I'm intrigued because as we, we're going to get a little further and then I am going to make Isabel talk about her maybe Claudius isn't a villain theory that she teased ruthlessly earlier 
But something about the way you hit, where is it? The need we have to use you. (laughs) I was like, bitch sounds like a villain to me. (laughs) The need we have to use you did provoke our hasty sending. And uh, so Will and Aaron, Rosengild, hi kids. For a second, I couldn't remember which way I cast it. And then I was like, oh no, this is the right way. (laughs) There's something about the dynamic between them it's hard because we live in a world where Rosecrans Guildenstern are dead is a play that has happened. And I feel like we all probably have some relationship to them. As soon as they walk into a production of Hamlet, I'm always like kind of in their play a little bit. You know what I mean? Because I've been in that play. And so there's a kind of thing of my brain where like, it's not the text of Hamlet that makes them feel weirdly identical, except for it sort of is. So whenever Claudia says their names one way and Gertrude says their names the other way, I'm always like, ah, like in a sort of stoppered <laughs> hall of mirrors. But the dynamic of what you guys just laid down of sort of Rosencrantz being slightly more, as I read it, will kind of ambivalent about the situation and Guildenstern being eager to step in front and being like, but it's fine and we're grateful and we're happy to be here and the slightly more politic of the two. Well, it's, we've been brought here clearly for a purpose, like a very specific sort of covert purpose. And I feel like it's that weird thing where like your friend's dad wants you to spy on your friend, I guess. And it's just like, but also I guess your friend's dad is your boss. So it's just like, you can just tell me to do this. Why are we playing a game, King of Denmark? <laughs> like... Totally. And also Queen of Denmark, Ariana, when, Ger- yeah. when the thing I wrote down is when Gertrude is like, he has much talked of you. I was like, bitch, no, he hasn't. I know, right? <laughs> no, he hasn't. Such no. clear oh. bullshit. He's doing he- I feel like Gertrude is doing that mom thing of like, oh my God, friends. Oh, my, my kid loves you. And then I'm like, 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 does not talk about them. No, you were invited to the birthday party. It just got lost in the mail. Oh my God, we wanted you here. I think she's also doing that mom thing of like, you know, if you come home from college and your mom is like, I stocked the fridge with all your favorites. Yeah. You're like, mom, I'm a vegan now. Yes. And, and, and it's like, uh, oh, I just keep forgetting. You know, it's like, how could a friends are Rosencrantz and Guildenstern really like, they don't seem to have been at the funeral. Are we bacon yeah. in that circumstance? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, right. Exactly. This, it's one of those weird things where, It makes me think about Horatio, even though he isn't in this act. It's just so interesting. The thing of like, these are the friends that your parents invited. And like through no fault of theirs, that is sus as hell. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like it's not their fault, but it just is. And then it made me think of like, okay, well, who invited Horatio here? The answer is nobody knows. Yeah. Because he was here when we got here. And he was here, he was here prior to Hamlet in the play, like prior to Hamlet knowing that he was here in the play. So it's like Horatio is like a mythic, weird creature. The play needs him to be here. But the fact that Rosengild are like, sup, he didn't invite us. Yeah. Okay. Uh, An interpretation where Horatio is Hamlet's imaginary friend. (laughs) You can mute me now. (laughs) It's a big bummer to ask your imaginary friend to tell the story. (laughs) So good. God, like like it's a production of Harvey and Horatio's played like a bunny suit the whole time. 
Hamlet dies and then Horatio just holograms away. <laughs> it just absolutely vanishes. Um, I, on, a, on a table working, enough fun. <laughs> on a table working. I think working. engaging your imagination is part of table work. Um, <laughs> but I do think there's a fun choice in how Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are introduced that yeah. you could try to cram just because they enter on a broken line with the queen uh, with Gertrude. And you could, I think, go either way where you have Rosencrantz jamming his syllables at the end of the Queen's thought. Yeah. Or there can be like a 10 to 12 syllable silence. <laughs> well, because it's just like they're like being so weird. And then it's just like, do you want me to do something? Just say it. And, yes. <laughs> and yes. then, of course, you get Guildenstern coming in before Rose. Like they each only have yeah. one they come in either interrupting or awkward silencing someone and going the opposite direction which is just such that's a brilliant thing i think that's really good i like the idea of the silence because i like the idea of you entering the play absolutely already desperate for instructions that you will never receive <laughs> But because I think that's, that's, that's it. Yeah. Well, I think that's I think that's where the stoppered play comes from. Is you exactly. have these people, and then you just have a king and a queen being fucking whacked to them. Just weird as hell. And, and just like, in that in that ten beat pause beforehand, you just get the vibe that these guys have a zany little thing happening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there is something so zany about them. Okay, I beseech. So, what's interesting about this is that Claudius lays out this he lays out like again the spin like the state version kind of thing of like the situation is this hamlet's gone crazy pants and <laughs> nobody knows like he's unrecognizable it's a huge bummer and like okay so his language about what you're here to do which is vague as hell you're right to be confused is Vouchsafe your rest here in our court some little time. You don't know how long you're staying. So buy your companies to draw him on to pleasure. So hang out with them, I guess. And to gather whether aught to us unknown afflicts him thus that opened lies within our remedy, which is just the cagiest way of saying, find out if something we don't know about is bugging him so that if we knew, we could fix it. Yeah. <laughs> I did. Is this, is this Gertrude's Wait, idea? I'm so. Oh, I'm sorry. No, 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 Aaron. Patrick. It, it just it just occurred to me that like, if Claudius had his druthers, he would probably talk to Polonius and be like, "Hey, so you're good at like spying on your kids, right? Could <laughs> could, could I like make you the taskmaster for figuring out what's going on with Hamlet?" But instead, Gertrude's like, "Let's figure out. There's something wrong with him. Let's. You know what?" Let's get his best friends, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, who he's talked about twice that I remember. <laughs> and let's invite them to the court and he'll tell them what's bothering him and then we can fix it. And I get the sense that that's not Claudius's workflow, but since he's the king, he has to make it seem like it's his idea and not that his wife... Mm-hmm. She does step in. She steps in to give it the human touch right away. And she yeah. handles most of the conversation with them. So I do think yes. that there are some legs on that idea. But Aaron? I was just going to say, I had a professor in college who, and I think this is like kind of beautifully encased in this scene. And his big thought on Hamlet was Hamlet is just a play about a bunch of people trying to help Hamlet. 
-hmm. and everyone's like doing it in their own way to varying degrees of success this is Gertrude trying to help Hamlet and this is Mm -hmm. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern trying to help Hamlet and even Claudius in his own way is like if we can figure this out Mm -hmm. we can all move forward and I just think I had seen that in other scenes but then reading through this I saw that here which kind of just goes back to what Patrick was saying yeah I think that's good I think that's I think that's helpful and it's it's because as as we move toward the antic disposition and things get weirder and weirder with Hamlet. It helps if the spirit of like, we're just trying to do our best to figure out what's wrong is part of what's creating this weird stilted like bedside manner that everyone has where everyone is sort of tiptoeing around the castle going like, so how are you doing, buddy? Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, and it's just including Claudius and Gertrude who are admittedly being very weird. <laughs> but there's also something I think, and I really got this, Patrick, from the way that you read this first speech of the, the like talking. Nobody says mad. Nobody says no. he's gone mad. You know, it's the, what is that in the seventh book of Harry Potter? Like they, they taboo Voldemort's name. It's, it's like, it's the yeah. same way that in, in Macbeth, Macbeth never actually says to the murderers, I want you to kill Banquo. Yeah. Well, it's it, also it, what like, we just did. Oh, sorry. It's also what we just did with ghost in act one of like, we don't say the word ghost until we're really fucking sure it's a ghost. Yeah. <laughs> but there's something about like transformation and afflicts him. And then Gertrude yeah. saying, and I realized I should have given a little bit of a pause to sort of frame the word change it son you know like there's something like we're circumscribing we're not getting at the heart of the issue this is talking around the issue Mm -hmm. and i think there's something it's almost like agreed upon language in a sort of interesting way it's like i can see a lot of sort of looking at each other and like a lot of sort of eye contact between the king and the queen like if he starts going towards if he's like, mm, and she's like, no, no, we said not mad. He is tr- simply transformed, you know? It's yeah, like- <laughs> I, I, get, I get the sense that in the speech, like, especially towards the end, I'm just like, it, this is the one you want me to say to them, right? And I feel like there's like an unspoken cue of just like, where you jump in and you're just like, you guys, he, he loves you. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Well, and then, and then the, um, it does seem kind of like a bribe what Gertrude is saying on the top of 46 of like, if you help us, we will help you (laughs) in a monetary sense. (laughs) And yet none of the terms are named. There is something so, there is something so kind of weirdly genteelly gloves on about this, that it's like, we're not going to name the problem. We're not going to name the length of the stay. We're not going to name what you get for helping. Yeah but you will get something. And so totally, I feel like the more we sit with it, the more it makes sense that Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are like, all right, (laughs) like there's not, none of the terms are specific. What's wrong, what we're gonna do about it, what we need from you. That is really interesting. Now we could stay here, but I know we need to move on. So let's push from, let's actually push from Gertrude. Thanks, Guildenstern and Gentle Rosencrantz at the bottom of that page and move forward. Thanks, Guildenstern and Gentle Rosencrantz. And I beseech you instantly to visit my too much changed son. Heavens make our presence and our practices pleasant and helpful to him. Aye, amen. 
Ah, the ambassadors from Norway, my good lord, are joyfully returned. Thou still hast been the father of good news. Have I, my lord? I assure my good liege, I hold my duty as I hold my soul, both to my god and to my gracious king. And I do think that I have found uh, the very cause of Hamlet's lunacy. Oh, speak of that. That do I long to hear. Give first admittance to the ambassadors. My news shall be the fruit to that great feast. He tells me, my dear Gertrude, he hath found the head and source of all your son's distemper. I doubt it is no other but the main, his father's death and our or hasty marriage. Well, we shall sift him. Welcome, my good friends. Say, Voltamon, what from our brother Norway? Tiny pause before we get Voltamond in. Thank you, Tim. Sorry. No just, worries. just to just to put the finger on the fact that after two one, when we just had that little conversation with Polonius and and Ophelia, this thing of we we talked about why Polonius doesn't just go to. Of course, we know what's met. We know what's wrong with him. His fucking dad is dead. It's interesting that the only person who does cut right to the heart right from the beginning is Gertrude. It's just interesting to me, and also her language is our or hasty marriage. And then we don't have time to dwell on it. We drive right back, right past. But the fact that like right away, the dudes, as far as we know, Claudius will get in a minute, but Polonius's instinct is, oh my God, Hamlet and Ophelia's like breakup is, you know, the source of this. But Gertrude's is, I know what the matter is. It's, it's this and just finger right on it. And then Claudius rolls past it but i just wanted to flag that before we bring the ambassadors in well and again there's the language right like polonius says lunacy right which is pretty close to madness and yes and then when claudius is telling gertrude he's like distemper you know there's like something really pointed about the use of describing whatever's happening to hamlet like, totally fascinating and no one says mad until Polonius says it eight times in one speech as we're about to hear. Yeah. Um, and then everyone is like, oh, he's mad. But but Hamlet doesn't say, oh, I'm mad in a serious way until until he's with Ophelia. <laughs> oh, no. Go for it, Patrick. Uh, I've just been tracking how many... Uh, I, I've been tr looking at Claudius's language, and a lot of times he just mentions family members. Like, he talks about father, wife, uh, uncle, nephew, cousin, and... In this, this is the only time he's, in the previous scene we saw him, he said, you know, think of yourself as, think of us as your father and be you as, uh, and be you as a son to us. And here he says to Gertrude, your son. He's no, and I, I, I'm trying to figure out like where, I've just been trying to track where is the point where Claudius officially disowns Hamlet. And it's pretty early on. <laughs> <laughs> that is interesting. Now, I know we could stay. Let's roll forward. Let's, uh, let's, Claudius, well, we shall sift him, if you could. Well, we shall sift him. Welcome, my good friends. Say, Voltamon, what from our brother, Norway? Most fair return of greetings and desires. Upon our first, he set out to suppress his nephew's levies, which to him appeared to be preparation against the Pollock, but better looked into. He truly found it was against your highness. Whereat, grieved that so his sickness, age, and impotence was falsely borne in hand, sends out arrests on Fortinbras, which he, in brief, obeys, receives rebuke from Norway, and, in fine, makes vow before his uncle never more to give the assay of arms against your majesty. 
wherein old Norway, overcome with joy, gives him commission to employ those soldiers so levied before against the Pollock, with an entreaty herein further shown, that it might please you to give quiet pass through your dominions for this enterprise. It likes us well. And at our more considered time, we'll read, answer, and think upon this business. Meantime, we thank you for your well-took labor. Most welcome home. This business is well ended. Uh, my liege and madam, uh, to expostulate what majesty should be, what duty is, what day is day, night, night, and time is time, were nothing but to waste night, day, and time. Therefore, since brevity is the soul of wit and tediousness, the limbs and outward flourishes, I will be brief. Your noble son is mad. Mad, call I it, for to define true madness, what it is but nothing else but mad. Uh, but let that go. More matter with less art. Madam, I swear I use no art at all. That he's mad, tis true, tis true. Tis pity, and pity, tis, tis true. <laughs> A foolish figure. But farewell it, for I will use no art. Mad, let us grant him. And now remains that we find out the cause of this effect, or rather say the cause of this defect, for this effect effective comes by cause. Uh, thus it remains, and the remainder thus perpend. I have a daughter. Have, while well, she is mine, who in her duty and obedience, Mark, hath given me this. Now gather and surmise. To the celestial and my soul's idol, the most beautified Ophelia. That's an ill phrase, a vile phrase. Beautified is a vile phrase, but you shall hear. These in her excellent white bosom, these, etc. Came this from Hamlet to her? Good madam. Stay a while, I'll be faithful. Doubt thou the stars are fire. Doubt that the sun doth move. Doubt truth to be a liar, but never doubt I love. Oh, dear Ophelia, I am ill at these numbers. I have not art to reckon my groans, but that I love thee best. Oh, most best. Believe it. Adieu, thine evermore, most dear lady, Hamlet. Okay, but let's pause there for a sec. Sorry, dear, before, because that's a lot, but I did want to kind of let, let it flow for a minute. So just to briefly touch Voltamond and Cornelius, it's interesting. I just want to sort of flag that the, even though the actual plot of the play is now happening, the way that Shakespeare sort of keeps the threat of like, foreign invasion sort of taught you know what i mean it's like things are things are starting to simmer and boil in a really real way here at home but the fact that like the idea that we are also that claudius and all of us but claudius is also dealing with international politics sort of coming home to roost at the center of this domestic conflict is interesting you know what i mean of just the, to know that he's dealing with it it keeps me aware that Shakespeare wants us to watch Claudius actively kinging a little bit. You know what I mean? Is that we can't forget that there is also that threat happening and that consideration happening at the same time. 
And then when we get into this stuff, obviously what we just talked about in terms of the terminology we use to describe Hamlet and then here comes, you know, mad, 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 nothing else but mad. Helpful that we had just talked about it. So in a way we don't have to now, but I mean, it just hammers at your ear. Something that occurred to me, Colin, because you're handling all of this so deftly and it's so funny, is this is the first like real scene that he gets with Claudius and Gertrude. And it occurred to me that this is the first scene where I start to feel like he's doing it really deftly and cleverly, but he's also adjusting to working with a new king. Like in a sense, you know, like I feel like this is the first scene where we sort of start to feel that he's like, how shall I put this? You know, like the, the ways in which he's figuring out how to speak to them. And also the fact that this matter is so personal to you. The thing that really sticks out to my ear here is like, we're not talking about anything theoretical or political. It's like the, the, the most flowery your language ever gets and sort of kind of high flown and theoretical is right before you boil it down to, I have a daughter <laughs> and now we know where we're really getting at. You know what I mean? And it's like the fact that it's yours maybe makes it harder to talk about plainly. I don't know. Yeah. That's, that's what occurred to me. Yeah. There's definitely layers to it, at least from, because there's that layer of not only is it the new King, but I'm coming in to say that your son is a crazy man like, yes. and say that to your face with a straight face and nobody's saying that to anybody. And I think there's, a level of confidence that I need to be confident to know, like almost attorney wise, like to make my mm. case. If I came in and I was just like, oh, maybe he's kind of crazy. I don't know. You know, that's crazy offensive. I, I think, you know, <laughs> I, you, need to, you need to know and have your facts. And so I think for me, it's, it's this, I know that this is happening and I want them to be as receptive to my news as possible. And it's that, articulation and I think when it comes to the letter like you said when it gets to I have a daughter and, and it's the letter it becomes more personal um yeah you know it, be, it and then it becomes a little bit more uh you know fire more more meaning behind it you know more fire behind it I think it's also this, this is a public scene which I think is really important like one of the reasons that uh, Voltamon comes in before this is to hammer home that uh, Claudius is holding court and so you know maybe Polonius likes the attention of everyone looking at him too so he gets a little little a little more flowery in the language because you know he's he's a good politician but it's not to say that he is not also humorous he used um, to be he used to be an actor <laughs> yeah he was he was a great actor in college so yeah it's it's a public scene and so he's not only saying, hey, your son's mad. He's telling all of court in this moment, your son is mad. That's I think really helpful. Yeah. Oh, no, oh yeah, sorry. I, I, I think there's also just jumping off that point that there is something so kind of extraordinary about these parents talking about their kids in such a public way. Like if you can, I mean, I think what's really fascinating to me is there, it, he has such a bluntness Polonius has such a bluntness when it comes to Hamlet, but as you were pointing out, Emma, all the sort of flowery language is the lead up. It's sort of the same thing that Claudius and Gertrude were doing, talking about Hamlet at the beginning of the scene yeah. is now what Polonius is doing is he starts to talk about his daughter. And then it's like, he kind of has to drop it and be like, okay, this is not an official way to communicate. So <laughs> this is about Ophelia, you know, but there is something like extraordinary about these, these this sort of set of, I mean, it's really a mother and a, a father with yes. a stepfather there talking about their children and their children's relationships. And I can imagine that would be pretty darn awkward. I don't I'm know. So, that's all so interesting. And I'm also so glad that 
that Isabel, you, you reminded us that it's a public scene because the reading of the letters as in that context and as this almost lawyer-like proof that you've sort of assembled, Colin, which I think is a smart way to think about it of like, okay, let's read these kids fucking love letters out loud right now in the middle of this public space where anyone could walk in. And then the content of the letters is really intense and like raw, you know? And also it's really sexual. And I think that the point of that, of like, I mean, to to continually remember, it's like the layers of awkwardness of the fact that it's these parents talking about their kids. One of them is crazy, which is a huge bummer. Uh, We're dealing with that. We're in a public space. And now we're having to talk about somebody's excellent white bosom in a really particular way. And that's hard to hear, (laughs) I think. And also the sexuality, I think that it introduces is like, it's hard to read probably. So whatever you have to do to get through that, but it's also like, it introduces, I think we just all have to really be aware of the sexuality it introduces to our understanding of the relationship that we move on with. Yeah. (laughs) Let's carry on, I think actually, with this sort of new understanding of the sex of it all from Claudius, but how hath she received his love? But how hath she received his love? What do you think of me? As of a man faithful and honorable. I would fain prove so. But what do you think when I have seen this hot love on the wing? As I perceive it, I must tell you that before my daughter told me or looked upon this love with idle sight, what might you think? No, I went round to work, and my young mistress, thus I did bespeak, Lord Hamlet is a prince out of thy star. This must not be. And then I prescripts gave her that she should lock herself from his resort, admit no messengers, receive no tokens, which done, she took the fruits of my advice. And he repelled a short tale to make fell into sadness, then into a fast, thence to a watch, thence into a weakness, thence into a lightness, and by this declension into the madness wherein now he raves, and we all mourn for. Do you think tis this? It may be, very like. Take this from this, if this be otherwise. How may we try it further? You know, sometimes he walks four hours together here in the lobby. So he does indeed. At such a time, I'll lose my daughter to him, to the king. Be you and I behind an heiress then. Mark the encounter. If he love her not and be not from his reason fallen thereon, let me be no assist for a state. We will try it. Oh, but look where sadly the poor wretch comes reading. Uh, Away, I do beseech you. Away, I'll board him presently. Oh, give me leave. Uh, uh, How does my good Lord Hamlet? (laughs) Well, God of mercy. Do you know me, my lord? Excellent. Well, you're a fishmonger. Not I, (laughs) my lord. Then I would you were so honest a man. Honest, my lord? Aye, sir, to be honest as this world goes is to be one man picked out of 10,000. 
That's very true, my lord. For if the sun breed maggots in a dead dog, being a good kissing carrying, have you a daughter? I have, my lord. Let her not walk in the sun. Conception is a blessing, but as your daughter may conceive, friend, look to it. How say you that still harping on my daughter? Yet he knew me not at first. He said I was a fishmonger. He is far gone. Uh, what do you read, my lord? Words, words, words. What is the matter, my lord? Between who? I mean, the matter that you read, my lord. Slander, sir, for the satirical rogue says here that old men have gray beards, that their faces are wrinkled, that their eyes purging thick amber and plum tree gum, and they have a plentiful lack of wit together with most weak hams, all of which, sir, though I most powerfully and potently believe, yet I hold it not honesty to have it thus set down. For yourself, sir, shall grow old as I am, as like a crab you could go backward. Though this be madness, yet there is method in it. Will you walk out of the air, my lord? Into my grave? Indeed, that is out of the air. How pregnant sometimes his replies are. My lord, I will take my leave of you. You cannot, sir, take it from me anything that I will more willingly part with all. Except my life, except my life, except my life. There you will, my lord. These tedious old fools. Okay, let's pause there for a second. Oh, so many juicy things going on here. I'm sorry, I have to tell a tiny, tiny anecdote, which is just that I can't hear that last little bit without thinking of one time Elsa and I were in a production of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. And the guy who was supposed to play, who was playing Polonius, forgot to come on stage with the Hamlet. And so he was standing there about to do this scene, didn't have a Polonius, and we were on stage, but hidden and couldn't come out. <laughs> and so the Hamlet just stood there for a second and said, if I were to walk out of the air, it would be into my grave. <laughs> and it was the best save of, of all time. But okay, Hamlet, hey, babe, you're here, you're mad. You're cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. It's happening. Miss me. You did. The, there's so many things about pregnancy that I want to talk about. <laughs> the, the, I mean, once you start noticing, you know, I mean, the conception, the how pregnant his replies are, the words are just sort of everywhere. But, uh, you know, Hamlet's stuff about it is obviously really pointed. And indeed, Hamlet's stuff toward Polonius is all really pointed. And all of the mad stuff is really pointed, which obviously is why we get, though this be madness, yet there's method in it made me think of something that sort of just popped back into my brain from like the far reaches of my education from studying this play in college that I wanted to speak into this space that I hadn't thought about in a while, which was the oddness. And maybe Isabel has thoughts about this, but it did come back fully formed from a college memory of the fact that the fact that there isn't a fool in this play, in this court and in this castle because Hamlet gets to become it and because the the role of the fool in the you know in the, the sort of cosmos of the of the court you know in this kind of play is to be able to speak truth to power essentially under the guise of madness or or foolishness which is the role that hamlet takes on himself and that that is the method did i make you happy isabel is that good 
Is that enough? Extremely happy. Hamlet is his own fool. Thank you, dear. Um, yeah, that that sort of thought sort of returned to my brain like a weird ghost. And I was like, oh, that's right. Because this is where it becomes relevant. And that's what the method is. Do you know what I mean? And so it's only going to gain relevance as it goes along, which is all the all the replies are so spiky. But the weird, the weird Ophelia energy, especially coming out of those sexy letters with immediately Hamlet goes right for, do you have a daughter? I wonder if folks have any other thoughts or questions about how hard we come in with that. I, I do think so. Of course, there's language in here that, you know, Hamlet calls Polonius a fishmonger and Polonius says, I've loosed my daughter to him. So there's like some indication here of Polonius being a pimp and pimping out his own daughter, which which as we've talked about Polonius in such a positive, like I, I don't think that's what he's doing here. But for Hamlet to say it, I think is significant because Hamlet, Hamlet, it, at this point, uh, in a lot of ways, believes no one. Uh, he trusts no one. And so he's looking for ways in which other people are liars. And of course, prostitutes in this time period are considered like terrible, immoral liars. That's kind of like their definition. And the idea of lying is actually much more important than any kind of sexual looseness. And prostitutes are often equated with actors in this time period for the same reason. Everyone's just a trained liar. That's nice. That's super, that's super, super helpful. Oh, I just want to, I mean, words, 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 back to our sort of rhetorical motif of threes. And I just, I just want to say that you cannot, sir, take from me anything that I will more willingly part with all except my life. We haven't had a sort of Hamlet, Prince of Denmark suicide watch yet on this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> really? You know what I mean? I mean, you, t- you, you talk about wanting to melt, you know, at the end of your first scene, but still it's language uh, that's intensifies. Just, that's, just fun. <laughs> that's just some fun where I'm like, I wish all the flesh would melt off my bones. <laughs> We're not there yet. Don't you worry, baby. No, it's an alternative to suicide. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's a melting it's not, process. It's not suicide if all my flesh spontaneously liquefies <laughs> and dribbles off. off my skeleton. Well, and I mean, it's even not suicide still, if I wish it happened. Yeah, but don't do anything actively to melt the flesh off my body. But here, just the fact that This thing that we've introduced of this fool role of whatever the antic disposition is, and in a way what we said about the players too, of the thing of like through illusion, you're able to tell more truths, you know, something about, it just strikes me as a significant line where we're finally getting, getting there. So, okay, let's roll. Let's roll because we got to, yeah. I also just wanted to say, I love that the, the words, words, words is a repetition of three is also yeah. like my life, my life, my life. Yeah. Cause to me, it's like, this play is so much about words and there, I just wanted to say, I love that particular Gertrude line of like, Oh, look at him all sadly reading. Like, look at my sweet emo son. Who's such a bookworm. Like there's something we associate yeah. Hamlet with words and with literacy and with learning. And, and to me that, that, it's pointed out so many times. It just sort of really jumped off to the page for me this time. Yeah, for sure. From like an original practices perspective, I would just love to imagine like a, a, a cast of people that have never read the play, the Hamlet coming out and hearing the line, look where sadly the poor wretch comes reading and him having to be like, fuck a uh, book, sadly, uh, oh, and like just having to cross the stage. I don't know. It's just one of those fun things. Look up original practices, kids. <laughs> it's helpful. It's helpful. Well, I mean, that opens a whole other can of worms about, well, yes. The, I know we, 
yeah, go I ahead. Can't, can't get into a lot more here, but I also just like the line for if the sun breed maggots and a dead dog being a good yeah. kissing carrion, like, and then immediately being like, conceptions of blessing. Like, I mean, like, given yeah. what Isabel told us about it and what the, you know, the, how this act or this scene began with, you know, like, okay, it's been a month, not wanting to like draw mm-hmm. interpretations here, but it does feel like a lot of new language mm-hmm. <laughs> about that mm-hmm. and you know and and this idea of like hamlet's like well i've been made the ultimate fool here uh <laughs> is i don't know that that line just like every single time i'm just like Ugh! yeah just, it's like, gross a dead dog have you a daughter like it's real rough it's rough. It's rough. But yeah, there's method in <laughs> the the closeness of the language of the gross the gross death stuff to to the idea of conception is also pur- purposeful and one feels and gross. Okay, that's awesome y'all. Let's move from let's move through. Can I you cannot take you cannot sir take from me anything from there? You cannot, sir, take from me anything that I will more willingly part with all. Accept my life, accept my life, accept my life. Fare you well, my lord. These tedious old fools. You go seek the Lord Hamlet. There he is. God save you, sir. My honored lord. <laughs> my most dear lord. My excellent good friends, how dost thou, Guildenstern? Ah, Rosencrantz, good lads, how do you both? As the indifferent children of the earth. Happy in that we are not over happy. On fortune's cap, we are not the very button. Nor the soles of her shoe? Neither, my lord. Then you live about her waist or in the middle of her favorites? Faith, her privates we. (laughs) In the secret parts of fortune. Oh, most true, she is a strumpet. What news? (laughs) None, my lord, but the world's grown honest. Then is doomsday near, but your news is not true. Let me question more in particular. What have you, my good friends, deserved at the hands of fortune that she sends you to prison hither? Prison, my lord? Denmark's a prison. (laughs) Then is the world one. A goodly one in which there are many confines, wards, and dungeons, Denmark being one of the worst. We think not so, my lord. Why, then, tis none to you, for there is nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. To me, it is a prison. Why, then, your ambition makes it one. Tis too narrow for your mind. God, I could be bounded in a nutshell and count myself a king of infinite space were it not that I have bad dreams. Which dreams, indeed, are ambition, for the very substance of the ambitious is merely the shadow of a dream. A dream itself is but a shadow. Truly, I hold ambition of so airy and light a quality that it is but a shadow's shadow. Then are our beggars' bodies and our monarchs and outstretched heroes the beggars' shadows. But in the beaten way of friendship, what make you at Elsinore? To visit you, my lord, no other occasion. Beggar that I am, I am even poor in thanks, but I thank you. Were you not sent for? Is it your own inclining? Is is it a free visitation? Come, come, deal justly with me. Come, come, nay, speak. What should we say, my lord? Anything but to the purpose. You were sent for, and there's a kind of confession in your looks which your modesties have not craft enough to color. I know the good king and queen have sent for you. To what end, my lord? That you must teach me. Be even and direct with me, whether you were sent for or no. What say you? Nay, then, I have an eye of you. If you love me, hold not off. My lord, we were sent for. I will tell you why. So shall my anticipation prevent your discovery, and your secrecy to the king and queen molt no feather. I have of late, 
but wherefore I know not, lost all my mirth, foregone all custom of exercises, and indeed it goes so heavily with my disposition that this goodly frame, the earth, seems to me a sterile promontory. This most excellent canopy, the air, look you, this brave or hanging firmament, this majestical roof fretted with golden fire, why, it appeareth nothing to me but a foul and pestilent congregation of vapors. What a piece of work is a man, how noble in reason, how infinite in faculties, in form and moving, how express and admirable, in action how like an angel, in apprehension how like a god. The beauty of the world, the paragon of animals, and yet to me, what is this quintessence of dust? Man delights not me. <laughs> No, nor woman neither, though by your smiling you seem to say so. Let's pause there for a second before we move on. Yeah, before we justify my laugh so I just come off like an imbecile. <laughs> it's in the text, people. <laughs> it's in the text. Oh, y'all. That was lovely. Uh, I don't want to ride too much past this initial negotiation between the two of them will that was such a funny choice to be not the love to be like to be like yeah why were we <laughs> she's like yeah can you i'm sorry can you tell me well it's like um, it's a game of like can i get one royal person to level with me for a second here like what the fuck's happening yeah actually what is going on <laughs> um you know are you my dad are you? Uh, it's so interesting the, the way I almost can't think of a dynamic that changes more over the course of a page and a half. You know what I mean? Of the fact that like the strain, the, the, the weirdly jocular dudes at school familiarity that you try to establish at the beginning and Hamlet rolls with for a second where like, it's just like, I mean, in the playing of it, it's three boys on stage, you know, the energy and it, the way that they try to establish that the dynamic is like, it's us friends, dick jokes, <laughs> you know? And then everybody's like, <laughs> dick jokes, dick jokes. What are you doing here? You know? <laughs> and then the way that really quickly, it's like, I, there's something really kind of modern feeling and, and recognizable about that fake jocularity at the beginning, I think, before it kind of deepens into something that is like, well, now we're just here having a conversation with a guy that we haven't seen in a long time, I think, presumably, and we don't know why we're here and he doesn't know why we're here. And the negotiation of trust is weird. I don't know, Rose and Guild, if you have any particular thoughts or needs or questions before we roll about how you feel about who they are, if you feel like you know anything yet. I was like so struck in the middle of that. Because you see, I think, in the beginning how at one point the three of them were all very similar, I think, in personality. And they have this, like, common vocabulary and this this sort of banter and this jocular <laughs> discussion. And I was like, damn, is the only reason Rosencrantz and Guildenstern didn't end up like Hamlet because they have each other? <laughs> like, are Rosencrantz and Guildenstern just, like, in an okay place because they have, like, someone that they... Are <laughs> and like are stuck with and because Hamlet is alone he has turned into this spiral mm. I don't I don't know I'm always so fascinated by why do these why are we the infamous duo and what does that mean and like what are their lives like outside of this yeah and it's interesting because they're 
they're smart. Like, you know, they have this banter. It's like, they're hitting the ball back in a really clever way. You know, like it's, it's, it's almost a good time. And I think, and I think because it's almost a good time, something that struck me was, I think that something that an opportunity that's there is because we're almost having a good time for a second. If Hamlet is really genuinely almost having a good time for a second, something struck me, Julia, about a nice opportunity that I felt in the sincerity of beggar that I am. I am even poor in thanks, but I thank you before that turns into we're not you sent for, you know? And then the thing is at first it's a question, this, and maybe a new idea. I just like that you're having a good time and almost trust it for a second. And then it's like, ah, this can't be real though. Who is this a real thing? And at first it's a question. And then in your next speech, it's already, nah, you were sent for it. There's a, you know, it's like, it's a question. And then it's a statement in the space of one line. Yeah. I mean, I think what I, I feel like reading this scene over and over and over again, because <laughs> I always, in, in, in the sort of like faulty way that we all have of like trying to find the answer, I've always been like, what is the point? what is the line on which Hamlet stops trusting Rosencrantz and Guildenstern? Which is, of course, a foolish endeavor because like, <laughs> it's not one specific line. But I think for me, I, when I was reading this the other day, I had like a really big moment where I was like, I think he does still trust them in this scene because he says, nay, then I have an eye of you. If you love me, hold not off. And Guildenstern says, we were sent for. And then he says, okay, then I'll tell you why. And he doesn't say like, I saw the ghost of my father and I'm still pretty pissed about my mom remarrying. But he says like, I have of late, but like, who knows why? Yes. Yo, looking at you, I've lost all my mirth. And like, like this isn't a speech where he's bullshitting them. He's like, the world has no joy to me. Like, it's not a lie. It's not a, you know, it it is a genuine offering. And you know, the part at the end is a bit awkward because it's like, oh, okay. Like you guys weren't ready for me to get that deep. Like that's fine. <laughs> but like it, this scene is not, it, this scene is not an antagonistic scene. No. Cause um, we get that one later. Although you'll yeah. play upon me like a pipe is later. And yes. it's, I think that's exactly right. I wrote down wherefore I know not is the only lie. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think it like, for me, I, I always want to like play that as sarcasm a little bit. I think it, it's an honest speech and like, yeah. it's not an, it's not in verse, but like, it's, it's still full of incredibly gorgeous language. And like, it feels like an honest speech to people that you care about, you know? And I think it's, it's important that this scene still has, and he does joke with them at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Like the, 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 the way that he's joking is different than the fooling that he was doing with Polonius. Yes. Like, yeah. The, the, the note, the like, the way that the language changes is noticeable. It's yeah. genuine. It's genuine exchange. It's yeah. not. It's it's not so close fisted. Genuine exchange is happening. Yeah. No, I think that's really great. I love that that speech is in prose. Me that too. speech is the specialist to me. I have to say, it's the first piece. It's the first piece of anything I ever memorized as a very small child. So weirdly, it's like very important to me. I I also think that there's like th- there's a way in which they speak to each other that we were sort of talking about earlier. They're like, uh, Aaron was saying they're like, they're, they have a similar language. Yeah. It is that thing of 
you know, when you talk to somebody from home and you just like, or like somebody that you went to like high school with and you can just like pick up where you left off. But then there's like a moment where you're like, oh, and it's been so frustrating. And like, you try to talk about like your work and like your full being and there like something is missing there. Mm -hmm. This scene feels like that, where it's just sort of like, there's even like when he says like, there's a kind of confession in your looks, which your modesties have not crafted enough to color. It like, it feels like a joke. Like, ah, you old fuckers aren't like, aren't deft enough to hide anything from me like I know you you old so and so it's like it feels, I like that as a choice for it yeah, I really do. yeah. it feels warm to me in a mm-hmm. way that a lot of the other scenes don't and so I, I I'm reluctant to like mm-hmm. try to find too much animosity in it because no, I no. think and I'm like I'm curious to hear Will and Aaron talk about this too but like it feels like th- there are small misunderstandings but it does feel like Oh, thank God. Like, again, like somebody's here to break up the misery of like what I'm going through, you know, it, it feels like a, a joyful reunion to me. I think on the, yes, I think it is a joyful reunion for you. Damn, bitch. Damn, son. Damn, Um, son. No, but I think on the other end, we've been carted like across the uh, world and we've been told like Hamlet's crazy now. So I do think there is a feeling of I do agree. I really do like the um, when you see high school friends and you resume an old, comfortable shape without really making a choice about it. Because I do mm-hmm. think you see that click, and then I think the the shift comes when it's like, okay, so Hamlet doesn't seem crazy, and then Hamlet's like, so what are you doing here? And they're like, what what are you doing here? And I think that's the moment when like there's a couple cards laid on the table. Totally, and I think also just like I like that. It, that for Hamlet, it feels like an attempt at genuine connection. And then it is that same thing with your high school friends where the shape is the same, but then someone is like, how are you really doing? And then someone is like, just suffering from crippling depression, <laughs> yeah. which is what the speech is. And then you're like, oh, all right. And then somebody comes in, you know? I mean, and like, yeah. what yeah. do you even say? Of course you stand there awkwardly. I agree. And I think it's so funny because in the earlier in the scene to go on the sort of metaphor that you were using, someone was using, of like they they like throw the ball back to Hamlet. I feel like for so much of the play, Hamlet's like throwing balls at people and then they stop and they're like, what the fuck did you throw me a ball for? Like, ow. <laughs> yeah. Like, why why did you do that? You just hit me with a ball. And Rosencrantz or Guildenstern are like, bumps that spike, bitch. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and like, a fun moment of joy. Everyone yeah. else in that play is like that moment when your dog, you're like playing fetch with your dog and they like bring it to you and you pick it up and throw it. And then they look at you like, what the fuck did you do that for? I just <laughs> brought you that ball. That's, that is Hamlet. Is Hamlet's like, I thought we were playing fetch. I'm confused. <laughs> that's exactly it. Now let's, I think that's, I think that's right. And I think that we've had, we've made, I think we've made a sort of warm and open-ended and generous choice, which is going to make things harder for us later, which is always the right choice. You know what I mean? Like, I think that that's like, I think that's right to follow this, like stay warm as long as you can. And until things get so wiggy that everything explodes. So can I have it from ham, 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 man delights, not me, no, nor woman, neither. Man delights, not me. No, nor woman neither, though by your smiling, you seem to say so. My lord, there was no such stuff in my thoughts. Why did you laugh then when I said man delights not me? To think, my lord, if you delight not 
in man. What Lenten entertainment the players shall receive from you. We coated them on the way, and hither are they coming to offer you service. He that plays the king shall be welcome. What players are they? Even those you are wont to take such delight in, the tragedians of the city. Gentlemen, you are welcome to Elsinore. Oh, wait, that's probably to you guys, huh? <laughs> Gentlemen, you are welcome to Elsinore. <laughs> hands, come then. You are welcome. But my uncle, father, and aunt mother are deceived. In what, my dear lord? I am but mad north-northwest. When the wind is southerly, I know a hawk from a handjaw. Well, be with you, gentlemen. Hark you, Guildenstern, and you too, at each ear a hearer. That great baby you see there is not yet out of his swaddling clouds. I will prophesy. He comes to tell me of the players. Mark it. My lord, I have news to tell you. My lord, I have news to tell you. When Roscius was an actor in Rome. Uh, the actors are come hither, <gasps> my lord. Buzz, buzz, buzz. On my honor. <laughs> then came each actor up. On his ass. The best actors in the world, either for tragedy, comedy, history, pastoral, pastoral comedy, historical, pastoral, tradition, tragical, tragical, pastoral, historical, tragical, comical, historical, pastoral, scene individual, or poem unlimited. Oh, Jephthah, judge of Israel, what a treasure hadst thou. What a treasure hath he, my lord. Why, one fair daughter and no more, the which he loved passing well. Still on my daughter. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that just pressing through that bit, I think that's absolutely for Rose Guilds and Hamlet, the right read of the scene, because you give them a little gift as the privacy ends there, which is the when the wind is southerly, I know a hawk from a handsaw. So you guys are doing your job well enough so far that the hand gets tipped there you know what i mean and like that is a piece of conspiratorial whatever a piece of generosity it feels like a team building and then polonius comes in so i think that is right i think that is right i just need to make isabel justify slash discuss then came each actor on his ass <laughs> how dare you what is this <laughs> it's just what shakespeare wrote i mean what's you know what's the problem i mean <laughs> You know, uh, Hamlet's Hamlet's funny. Uh, he's he's being funny. There is also so it's a continuation of the line. So Hamlet is saying, when Roscius was an actor in Rome, then came each actor on his ass. But they break it up in the middle. So mm -hmm. it's, so Hamlet's buzz buzz is telling him to be quiet so he can finish his story. And this is some weird uh, Roman theater thing that I actually don't fully understand because all I know about <laughs> Roman theater is that they loved fart jokes. So this seems really sort it feels of right. apt. Yeah. That feels right. That was a um, mode of transportation. Okay, Pistol from Henry IV part two would think that was hilarious. And I think in all of us, yes. Probably what isn't here is that there's just like a really long bit where they just try to get Polonius to sit on a whoopee cushion uh, and it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. And tech so, supports that. Tech supports yeah, it. You. I want to see that version. Great. Yeah, that's what we'll do. Okay. We passed the players on the way and told them to come. Weird, but welcome. <laughs> okay, guys. <laughs> Okay, the tragedians of the city. Or my uncle, father, and aunt mother are deceived is one of my favorite moments. And again, it's part of that conspiratorial energy of like, I don't know, it tips the hand about what you're pissed about. It does feel like you're taking them into your brain space in a more wholesale way. Okay, folks. And then again, what an appropriate place to end this chunk. 
still on my daughter of like, we absolutely have not resolved that shit because it keeps coming up every five seconds, no matter who's talking or what we're allegedly talking about. Yeah. Why? Why? <laughs> so creepy like why? you feel Ophelia <laughs> why? why is this happening I know but jumping to the end the much discussed players are rocking up and excited to get you in the mix Joe so we will begin if you're cool Colin if you're ready on it with you are welcome masters welcome all on page 62 great yeah okay awesome let's rock in you are welcome, pastors. Welcome all. I am glad to see thee well. Welcome, good friends. Oh, my good friend. Masters, you are welcome. We have a speech straight. Come, give us a taste of your quality. Come, a passionate speech. What speech, my good lord? I heard thee speak me a speech once, but it was never acted, or if it was, not above once. For the play, I remember, pleased not the million, t'was caviary to the general. One speech in it I chiefly loved, t'was Aeneas' tale to Dido, and thereabout it, specially when he speaks of Priam's slaughter. If it live in your memory, begin at this line. Uh, let me see, let me see. The rugged Pyrrhus, like the Hyrcanian beast, tis not so. It begins with Pyrrhus. The rugged Pyrrhus, he whose sable arms, black as his purpose, did the knight resemble when he lay couched in the ominous horse, hath now this dread and black complexion smeared with blood of fathers, mothers, daughters, sons, and thus o'ersized with coagulate gore, with eyes like carbuncles, the hellish Pyrrhus old grandsire Priam seeks. So, proceed you. For God, my lord, well spoken, with good accent and, and, and good discretion. Anon, he finds him striking too short at Greeks, his antique sword rebellious to his arm, lie where it falls, repugnant to command. Unequal matched, Pyrrhus at Priam drives, in rage strikes wide, but with the whiff and wind of his fell sword, the unnerved father falls. Then, Senseless Ilium, seeming to feel this blow with flaming top, stoops to his base, and with a hideous crash takes prisoner Pyrrhus's ear. For lo, his sword, which was declining on the milky head of Reverend Priam, seemed in the air to stick. So, as a painted tyrant, Pyrrhus stood, and, like a neutral to his will and matter, did nothing. Ah, but as we often see against some storm, a silence in the heavens, as hush as death, anon the dreadful thunder doth rend the region. So, after Pyrrhus's pause, aroused vengeance sets him new a work. And never did the Cyclops' hammers fall with less remorse than Pyrrhus's bleeding sword now falls on Priam. Out, out, thou strumpet fortune. Oh, this is too long. Okay, pause. <laughs> this is too long. Okay, so let's pause there for a second, just for a second. I wondered, obviously, I think we're all receiving the images, you know, that Joe just just took us through. But I was going to ask uh, Isabel, if you don't mind speaking to the significance of the story 
that, you know, of the story and the section that Hamlet asks for, if there are any thoughts that you have about like why this particular piece and this particular myth and this particular language is like being invoked right now. Yes. I mean, I'm, to, to be really honest, I was um, I was looking at quotes about caviar from the time period. Because um, <laughs> it was considered um, caviar a, to the general, <laughs> a, a strange meat like black soap. But I mean, I mean, this particular myth, it's in Shakespeare's imagination because uh, Marlowe wrote this story into Dido, Queen of Carthage. And so, um, you know, uh, nothing's original in this time period. It's I mean, y- you know, it's it, it kind of compares to Hamlet. We should cut this. I don't know what I'm so unprepared for this question. <laughs> no, sorry, not to put you on the spot. Well, other folks too, if people have thoughts about what they received in the speech that feels germane to where we are, the things in my head were obviously like Hamlet as actor is almost a separate question. But the fact that Hamlet as literal actor kind of steps into this moment is something interesting. But what do other what are other folks? picking out of this. Whenever I see someone, whenever I hear the sort of very declamatory Greek, Greek style verse, I, I tend to kind of just zone out because it's very, it just, it, it, it tends to like go at a, I don't know, I don't even know what to say, like a, a, a I don't know, like an epic clip. It's, it, it, it doesn't, like, it doesn't stick out to me that much, but Joe obviously read it beautifully. And the part that really stuck, stuck out is the short line of, um, uh, his sword, which was declining on the milky head of Reverend Priam, seemed to stick in the air and did nothing, which is sort of foreshadowing, I guess, of how we're going to see Hamlet take his sword to the head of the king. And I wonder if we're seeing him at sort of a point where he's sort of frozen in action here. Yeah, I, I'm, I am kind of mm-hmm. curious just about how this weird, um, like, present tense uh, Greek or I guess Roman tale mm-hmm. figures into the the grand scope of the play. It it doesn't seem very interesting to read it out, but it obviously has some very important narrative portention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Andrea had a thing and then Ariana has a thing. Yeah. Yeah, I was just gonna say, because what did stick to me as well was did nothing. Me too. Just in that moment and how we were talking with X one about how much it's like, okay, great. We set it up. Obviously he's going to kill the king and there we go. And then there's still five more acts of this play. So yeah, just did nothing and how much relevance it has with Hamlet's whole shtick right now of (laughs) trying to figure out what to do. Mm -hmm. I heard silence in the heavens in a similar way, which is interesting. Um, Yeah. Ariana had a thing. Well, I just, um, just connecting to act one to me. And I think what's so cool about the fact that Joe was the ghost and now Joe is Mm -hmm. the player is there is something about the narrative of the father figure being killed in a really grotesque way that we're now experiencing through, through this sort of also kingly figure, right? Of Priam, the sort of king of Troy. So to me, it's like, this is, always in Shakespeare when characters feel like they they don't have the proper stakes to sort of express their situation it's like they put themselves into mythology so that to me was was what sort of jumped out with this and and the resonance of having Joe just tell us about his death as the ghost ghost in act one was also like really hit home for me I'm super happy to hear you say that because that's something obviously that like that casting does and this like by no means a double that I invented I've seen it done in a really good way but it is also something that I'm like 
interested in refracting through the play with a bunch of these other doubles about how people who were like responsible for killing or have lost stay alive in other ways and sort of echo. But um, Isabel had a thing. Yeah, um, on a on, on sort of a super basic level, Prius is the son of Achilles. Um, this is about the fall of Troy, and 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 Pyrrhus is in here to um, avenge his father's death. So Hamlet has to see his own story uh, reflected back to him through theater in actually more than one way. And and we always think of the mousetrap as being the way, but he does it a lot of times, um, which I think is really significant. Yeah, that's super interesting. That's super interesting. The fact that, well, and it's like the specific text that occurs to Hamlet in this moment too of like, oh yeah, I remember a line. And that it's like a whole paragraph from that particular situation. I feel like, yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Oh, sorry. Um, yeah. No, you said uh, you said that uh, Marlowe wrote Didus, uh, Dido of whatever. Um, Queen of Carthage. Yes, thank you. Dido, Queen of Carthage. Was that before or after this? Before. So could this yeah. just be Bill Shakespeare being like, yo, I can write this better. <laughs> I think for sure. I think there's also there's also some other playwrights in here too. And I mean, uh, if I want to get like a too deep history here, but like other playwrights pre Shakespeare, the University Wits did a lot of of rewriting of Greek stuff. But Shakespeare really doesn't do that because it's in, it's it's less accessible to the English people. So he kind of stops that. And so part of of this speech is Shakespeare commenting on that. He's being very very clever, and. And it, it sort of shows that like Hamlet is really educated because Hamlet knows this stuff, but it's also Shakespeare being like, I know this stuff. I just don't want to tell it to you this way. Mm-hmm. I like that. I like that. Especially because the, because this isn't the play, like you said, this is another, yet another source that has the same thematic material, but this isn't the play that they do even. So that's an interesting sort of, it's like, we could try it. Nah, not that one. You know, like I like that as an energy for it too. It's interesting. Um, Hamlet just wants to hear it. Like he's, he's just like, I want, I love this speech. I want to hear it. And it, it seems like he has some kind of relationship with the players. And of yeah. course on, on that doubling, you know, Hamlet has a series of father figures, if we're going to gender it, that he sort of meets and so the first player is, is I think, an overlooked one. Mm-hmm. Totally, totally. Think, yeah, that's helpful. I think also, like, I mean, we, we sort of talked about this a bit, but um, I wanted to flesh it out. You know, like in act one, he's sort of like, I'm going to put on this antic disposition. And then when, you know, seeing Rosencrantz and Guildenstern it is like, I think, sort of a surprise. And like we've talked, I, I, we sort of spoke about uh, in act one, there's this sense that like he's been so alone and he's been so dreadfully attended. And so, you know, and now he's got Horatio and Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. And then these players who he knows so well, like I sort of feel in the sort of lead up to this language, this like this desire to sort of like show off in this way where you know how like when you go home and you kind of like revert to old habits, <laughs> you know, it must be so. And then it's so refreshing to be like, oh, yes, like, let me show you all these things that I'm interested in and passionate about, like it's sort of this like interesting groundedness that happens as he's kind of like trying to lose his identity and become this sort of killer that he feels incapable of of doing. So I think it's really, this this beginning part is so funny to me. He's just sort of like, oh yeah, like I remember this speech, like the people didn't like it, but I thought it was really brilliant. Let me, uh, let me just give it a whirl, you know, I, yeah. not that I, I don't know. And then it just sort of it feels to me kind of like it just hits home a little too hard. And then he's like, oh, obviously that 
like even if it you know wasn't intentional it's like oh yeah obviously that speech hits a little little too hard <laughs> yeah 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 i think that's really i think that's really brilliant and he's a big nerd but before we go on something you just made me think about is that because these guys show up, as you say, as another wave of people who are coming to see you, you know what I mean? Like people who are arriving at Elsinore in these weird ways. It's interesting to me that the people who affect Hamlet the most emotionally, as opposed to old school friends of one kind or another, the people who affect Hamlet the most emotionally are the people who acting as a motif, like the people who are here to present you and like an illusion and not tell you the truth are the people who move you the most. I don't know. It's an well, interesting I mean, thing of like the trust is actually more deep, but, you know? but, but, you know, at the same time, you could also argue that Rose and Gil don't come to tell the truth. Entirely, well, no, that's, that's, but, that's sort of what I mean oh, is oh, that yeah. the, 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 in a way, the illusion, the illusion of the players is more trustworthy, I suppose, because it's their yeah. job. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. That's something yeah. that just sort of occurred in my mind as you were saying that. Let's press on from, this is too long, Polonius a little deeper. Oh, this is uh, too long. <laughs> it shall to the barbers with your beard. Prithee, say on, for he's for a jig or a tale of Baudry or he sleeps. Say, come on, come to Hecuba. But who, ah, woe, had seen the Moblet Queen? The Moblet Queen. Oh, that's good, Moblet Queen is good. Run barefoot up and down, threatening the flames with bison room, a clout upon that head where late the diadem stood, and for a robe about her lank and all o'er timid loins, a blanket in the alarm of fear caught up. But if the gods themselves did see her then when she saw Pyrrhus make malicious sport and mincing with his sword her husband's limbs, the instant burst of clamor that she made, unless things mortal move them not at all, would have made milch the burning eyes of heaven and passion in the gods. Look, where he has not turned his color and has tears in his eyes. Prithee, no more. Tis well. I'll have thee speak out the rest of this soon. Good, my lord, will you see the players well bestowed? Do you hear? Let them be well used, for they are the abstract and brief chronicles of the time. After your death, you were better have a bad epitaph than their ill report while you live. My lord, I will use them according to their desert. God's bodkins, man, much better. Use them after your own honor and dignity. Take them in. Follow him, friends. We'll hear a play tomorrow. Dost thou hear me, old friend? Can you play The Murder of Gonzago? Oh. Aye, my lord. <laughs> well, well tomorrow night. You could, for a need, study a speech of some dozen or sixteen lines, which I would set down and insert in, could you not? Mm, yeah, aye, my lord. Very well. Follow that lord, and look you mock him not. My good friends, I'll leave you till night. You are welcome to Elsinore. Good, my lord. Tiny pause before we go on. Okay. Ooh, a couple funny things there. <laughs> Joe, I think that's a brilliant choice to be like, oh, the murder of Gonzaga. That old oh, song. My, my old favorite. Yeah. Um, so quickly for all of our brains, the murder of Gonzago and the mousetrap are not the same play. Are they the same play? 
do because the mousetrap always... is by agatha christie actually <laughs> it had a really long run in the west end <laughs> um and continues and continues to this very day no that's just something that has always uh passingly bothered my ear of the fact that you ask for a what sounds like a play by name and then later give it a different title and i, mean, I always assumed that he was just saying that as a like as a little as a like it's a trap i'm catching a mouse in yo yeah i always assumed it was sort of a joke for himself yeah well and it also is just such a weirdly anachronistic sounding title for a play in this context the mousetrap <laughs> you know i was just like the murder of gonzago sounds like what the play is called but that's passing that's neither here nor there i mean what this thing of stopping him on the way to say, could you learn some, if you can do it, great. Could you learn some text that I'm going to set down? It's like so quickly. I was just reflecting in that earlier part about Hamlet as theater nerd, you know, Hamlet as actor, the fact that Shakespeare puts this defense of actors and acting into his mouth, but also now we get Hamlet as playwright. And that's an equally interesting motif, Hamlet as writer of this story. You know what I mean? So I wanted to kind of plunk that on the table and see what we make of that, you know? Anybody, uh, any, anything else um, screaming at anybody's eyeballs in that, yeah. in that little chunk? Yeah. I have a, this is something that I think we're going to continue to talk about as we go forward, but the section that the player gives about um, the emotion and the feeling of Hecuba, of yeah. Priam's wife, I am on record as being a great Gertrude apologist, and I will admit that freely. We want um, those in this room. She needs more of those. We, we need Gertrude. <laughs> we need the Gertrude apologist here. Um, so I, that passage, when Joe read it, really stuck out to me and made me think about, and maybe perhaps other people have thoughts or more as we go, um, it really made me think about the kind of fixation that so many in the play have on the way Gertrude takes not only the inciting incident, of her husband dying, but also things along the way mm. as related to this great visible outpouring of emotion from this fictional legendary character. Um, so that just pinged for me and I was curious about it. And as we kind of go forward also with other Gertrude things. Yeah, I think that's super helpful. And I mean, yeah, shifting into this language about the queen. Isabel, wanna, or, or anyone, but just cause you probably have one. Sorry, darling. Do you wanna, uh, do you wanna just quickly off the cuff, shoot us a definition of moblet? Yes. Thank um, you. <laughs> sort of, uh, well, it means ennobled and it's a word that Shakespeare made up, we think it, for this scene. And Shakespeare is so proud of himself that he draws attention to it by having somebody be like, moblet? Wow, that's very clever. <laughs> Mobile <Noblet>. queen is good. <laughs> yeah, so uh, it, it, it means it means ennobled or it means veiled, um, depending on how you read it. But as Shakespeare made up the word, it's a little hard to say. Fantastic. Love it when he does that and then comments on how good it is himself. Thanks, Will. It's a classy move. This whole scene is a lot of Shakespeare being like, look how good I am. <laughs> No, I know. You can so feel it. You can so feel a big like, bitch, listen. I mean, playwright ventriloquism of other playwrights is such an interesting thing of like, I'm really stuck now. It's marinating in my brain. Uh, you're, you know, your thing about like, of course, this isn't this kind of Greek 
drama is not something that he like sort of aped very much. You know what I mean? It's like, it's not a style that he wrote in very much, but of course it was super contemporary at the time. So I really do sort of love the idea of like, it's like sampling. <laughs> it's like really good mixing and sampling of sort of like, and a little bit of that. And <laughs> this is me doing a quick cover of that. And now we're back to the play. <laughs> I um, totally just want to reinforce that. I got to do an, like an interview with Devon Glover, who's the sonnet man who does like hip hop mm, Shakespeare. Yeah. And he does this whole thing about how it's much, it's much more useful for us to think about Elizabethan playwrights as like much more like hip hop artists. Like they're constantly yeah. sampling each other. They're also like throwing down and being like, you suck, I'm the best. Like they're they're doing that throughout. It's like interwoven into their work. And I just love that, the, the sampling thing. I just wanted to throw that out. All I want is someone's dissertation that is like, Shakespeare, the diss tracks, you know what I mean? Like, you know, where someone just like takes you through the hidden diss tracks, but um, oh, yeah. yeah, that's super, it, that's a super interesting thing. I'm also really curious about, uh, and I'm curious for like Joe's opinion on this and also Isabel's, um, just sort of, it, it was sort of striking to me the the way that this speech like differs from the speeches in Hamlet and how weirdly narrative it is. And it just sort of, be, just because like as actors, like we're always looking for monologues and shit. And it's so hard to find ones that are active and that aren't like this, just sort of like a narrative. And it's so interesting to me, the way that this speech is supposed to be like, this is what the players are doing. And yet it's, it's so different from the actual speeches in the play, which are so much more active and non-narrative. And so I'm, I'm just sort of curious about Joe's thoughts on that. And like, obviously Isabel's thoughts on that and everyone's, I mean, we had, Joe has these great narrative speeches that he does so well. I mean, with the ghost too, you know, that's like kind of the only one we get right in the play. That's like, so heavy on exposition right that's sort of like this is what happened this is what happened to me and this is how I felt and then this and this yeah yeah Mm -hmm. so it's sort of like I mean obviously like the the dual casting is super interesting but I I just wanted to hear Joe talk about that (laughs) oh gosh uh well I don't know like I I it it feels for me it this this part is always kind of like stood out as being like very almost like a different fucking play is like this these this like weird scene just is just like popped in and obviously you know it's supposed to reflect you know about like what's going on in, in Hamlet the play this this sort of metatextual type thing but yeah I, I I mean I've never read this role before so it is interesting as an actor being in the play and having this sort of language that isn't the same as in the rest of the show as well i don't know it yeah i don't know i don't know if i have fully formed thoughts and opinions on it really i think i'm still kind of like working through it but i do find it just interesting that it is this kind of strange like alien piece that's been placed into the center of the show i think i think that's great um i will say that the this series of speeches is usually cut um in production i think that's I think that's a mistake, but I understand that Hamlet is 17 hours long and, you know, you, you do have to make cuts and better cut this than Fortin Bras out of the play entirely. I, I also think that, like, I think that this speech is so is so different from how the other speeches in, in, the, in the play are to just really, like, lift it out and, and kind of make it that alien thing, like Joe said. And I think that if everything went right for Hamlet, these speeches describe how the house shit would have gone down. 
right? So Hamlet, he would be some kind of great hero who then avenges his father. And then his mother, Hecuba in this situation is like a good grieving queen as opposed to being what Hamlet views as just like a big hoe. So this is like Hamlet's like ideal world. That's so interesting because you just reminded me that's super helpful. You reminded me that one of the only other references to the kind of Greek pantheon of stories that we've had is Hamlet's, you know, as unlike my father is I to Hercules. And the thing of like the comparative reality between like there is a world of heroes and good queens who grieve and don't hoe around. And then there's the world that I live in where I'm like this guy, not Hercules and my mother by extension. Yeah has Hyperion all over the place like the god he's Mm -hmm. like the god of the sun and like the morning yeah I also just because I have lots of questions about this bit I also want to know Colin's thoughts on like the way that I I think that it's so interesting the way that the scene starts with Hamlet just sort of like making fun of of Polonius and like doing this sort of like no, I'm having a great time here. Everything's fine. I'm totally normal. <laughs> um, thing then to these sort of like unexpected arrivals of these, you know, Rosengild and the players and how quickly like that completely the antic disposition, if we're, you know, for lack of a better phrase or for, because that's the best phrase, um, the way that it just sort of dissolves and sure. like, I'm just I, so curious I'm about with that. that. I, I, I agree. And I was, I was reading through it and just kind of, I think Polonius in general has this just very politician vibe. I mean, as we were talking about before, as he rose to this level from nothing to a degree. So he knows, he knows the chess game, I think really, really well. And he was, he had just had this conversation, like you said, then Hamlet is coming through and, and, almost like baits him in a way and is and is retorted you know and it but it's still kind of supporting his hypotheses and and I think in a way he did welcome it I think it's it is one of those things because I'm I get to learn more or at least be like recon level more being around the conversation potentially um and but yeah I think it I think ultimately the answer is for me is just the politicianness of him and and knowing the strategy of the moment and even those asides they're they're kind of asides to me I don't think he would say that right out loud that in in which the first player could hear it but I think mm. it's, you know it's trying to make this chummy chumminess I think as well with Hamlet and kind of supporting his interest to get more recon, you know, in a way, mm-hmm. at least that's, that's how I'm reading it. I think that's interesting, Colin, especially because earlier in the scene, Polonius also likes the theater. Yeah. He has, yeah. you know, like Polonius also has like an interest since his youth in the theater. And it's so interesting to me that Shakespeare keeps doing that in this play of just sort of like, this guy likes acting, this guy likes acting, you know? And like, and it's interesting too, because something that I had never seen that played seriously, like I've never seen that played as anything but like a joke at the expense of an old guy who's like, I did some acting once and you're like, okay, okay. But something about Colin, about the way that you did after Hamlet does the long quotation and is like, this particular passage, start there, that, that moment on page 63 when Polonius says, for God, my Lord, well spoken with good accent and good discretion. 
there's something, there's an interesting opportunity there. You use the word chummy. There's an interesting opportunity in terms of like, are you surprised that Hamlet is that good an actor? Like, or I, like- I think it's more of that baiting him, yeah. I, at least to me, or, or playing those interests, playing mm-hmm. to the interests. You know, I think the dopey characters or the written ones are, you know, I like, I try like to find a slyness or the sleuth in that uh, because I think there's, yeah, that's good. I think there's comedy is a tool and, you know, and a vessel to kind of get what you want. I really way, like that. Or to yeah. make friends with people or to kind of like lower people's guards. It's Rad. also such an, it's also such an interesting, like, the, like the class dynamic is so interesting in this bit, just in the sort of like, obviously Polonius is well-educated, like his son is going, uh, you know, is, is educated, is, you know, he's, he's a rich, high-class man who works in the court, but also there is this sense of like, okay, for this guy to go on and on about how he loves the theater, it's like, you're just like an old fuddy-duddy. But for me, who's like, who, like, because I'm the prince, like it's fine for me to like wax philosophical about the theater. It's such a like you you see you see the sort of like double standard there in the way that he's speaking. Oh, I'm also sure. curious in with talking about that about what Will and Aaron think because this is such like a weird like thing. Rosen like this is also just like a dramaturgical question. Like did Rose did Rosencrantz and Guildenstern like bring the players here specifically to be like ah let's cheer up our mate or like did, was it just like a sort of coincidence <laughs> <Indian> arrival <laughs> you know? I'm just curious also like what a weird thing to just oh hey like nice to see you sorry about your your dead father oh yeah these these guys are here okay we'll just sit here while you like figure your shit out <laughs> like it's so weird we will truly have to ask Tom Stoppard truly even they don't really know though in that <laughs> so. we will have to ask Richard Dreyfus. yeah I yeah. feel like uh Rosencrantz and Gillenstern are two of those characters that could live anywhere depending on the direction. Yeah. Yes, I, that's true. I've seen it a billion ways and I'll see it a billion more. <laughs> and I am excited to talk through which way we're talking about. <laughs> Me too. Me too. Good, you, my lord. Me too. Good, good my lord. Me too, my you lord. crazy loons. Well, then what we should do is uh, I would love to work forward and get into some ham time right here. Before we go on, Emma, I'm I'm so sorry, but I do have a question for you. Yes. How how do you want the audience like how how would you as a director stage or shape this <laughs> part of the scene to indicate to the audience that like this is important to the story and that they should be paying attention because it seems like such a such a left turn mm. totally. So like how would you I don't know how how would you wrap this up and put a bow on it? I think that part of the key to that lies in Hamlet's lack of warmth and lack of trust toward everyone else that has already showed up. And I do think it's this thing of like the fact that he's very excited for them to be there and needs them to be there because this feels like not only the mechanism of like, ah, I can use that. This is good for me in a practical way. Like I can use this, but also to me, there's another fervor underneath it, which is the thing of like, something that my soul needs in some kind of way. I mean, maybe it's, as Isabel said, that he needs to see his story reflected through theater, which seems to be the medium through which he can understand it. I think that Hamlet's need to be reflected in some way adequately by his surroundings, it's such good, it has to be such good news for Hamlet. And until then, we have to have such a palpable understanding of his loneliness 
that this feels like not a moment that is a break in the action, but a moment that is a sudden, um, a sudden heightening of emotion that hasn't been possible before. Because after all, the heightening of emotion is the event that Rogue and Peasant Slave is about. We need to be moved in a really sudden way that we didn't know that we needed because that's what Hamlet needs. So it has to be a sudden injection for Hamlet and thereby for the audience of something that we needed that we were repressing before now. Does that make it, sense? It does. It's almost like you're saying we we are seeing in this in this scene, like we will see in almost no other scene in the play, how Hamlet was before his father died. Almost, like what, yes. What he was like operating in a healthy environment mm. with, you know, with occupation that that really motivated him. And the loss, like the sudden loss of that and the realization of his current circumstances propel him into rogue and peasant slave. Or maybe that's just thrown into the mix. No, I think that's I think that's useful. Being moved, being moved is is the, on a visceral level the same as being delighted. On a certain you know what I mean? It's like it's it's that something feels, oh, that's what I it like hits the spot for Hamlet in a way that he maybe he didn't expect, but it has to be visceral enough that the audience is like, oh, that changed the temperature of the room. And then that moves us into what comes next. It has to change the temperature of the room. It can't just pause and then resume. In a way, it's tricky because in order to know how we're shifting from what to what, that comes out of the artificiality that Hamlet is asking himself to play for, I I don't know. I feel like this is, I, I perhaps didn't express it fluidly earlier, but I think it's this thing of, because Hamlet doesn't trust anyone and swore, you know, received this big secret, swore those guys to secrecy at the end of act one. And now is like being beset by people who are maybe not really trustworthy. What's happening is artifice is all over act two. And this kind of artifice feels pleasurable to him and not like existentially damaging. It's really just Shakespeare advocating for art therapy. Yes. (laughs) Only half joking but yeah, the, 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 I mean we haven't gotten there yet but like he, this is post ghost at the beginning of this act we hear about how Hamlet has lost his shit at everyone and then we see him sort of lose his shit at everybody and then this player comes in and he's like oh, finally and it's like a weird and it, I feel like it again brings up like is Hamlet mad is he putting on madness what is actually happening what yeah. the fuck was going on? The first draft of that scene was just uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern come in with uh, a really fluffy golden retriever, and they're like, "We just thought you might need a dog." And then the play <laughs> just ended, hold, and he was like, "Dog." Yeah. <laughs> the better, the better version of the yeah, the better therapy, but the less good theater, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, he's hungry for something that he that he needs, and then gets, and then it changes the temperature. That's the closest answer I have, I think. But let's squeak into Rogan Peasant for a sec. Huelia. Now I am alone. <laughs> oh, what a Rogan Peasant slave am I. Is it not monstrous that this player here, but in a fiction, in a dream of passion, could force his soul so to his own conceit that from her working, All his visage waned, tears in his eyes, distraction in his aspect, a broken voice, and his whole function suiting with forms to his conceit. 
<laughs> all for nothing, for Hecuba. What's Hecuba to him or he to Hecuba that he should weep for her? What would he do had he the motive and the cue for passion that I have? He would drown the stage with tears and cleave the general ear with horrid speech, make mad the guilty and appall the free, confound the ignorant and amaze indeed the very faculties of eyes and ears. Yet I, a dull and muddy metal rascal, peaked like John of dreams, unpregnant of my cause, and can say nothing, no, not for a king upon whose property and most dear life a damned defeat was made. Am I a coward? Who calls me villain, breaks my pate across, plucks off my beard and blows it in my face, tweaks me by the nose, gives me the lie of the throat as deep as to the lungs? Who does me this? Ha! Swoons, I should take it, for it cannot be, but I am pigeon-livered and lack gall to make oppression bitter, or ere this I should have fatted all the region kites with this slave's awful. Bloody body villain, remorseless, treacherous, lecherous, kindless villain, oh, vengeance! I, what an ass am I? This is most brave that I, the son of a dear father, murdered, prompted to my revenge by heaven and hell, must, like a whore, unpack my heart with words and fall a-cursing like a very drab, a scullion, <laughs> fie upon to f about my brain. Hmm. I have heard that guilty creatures sitting in a play have by the very cunning of the scene been struck so to the soul that presently they have proclaimed their malfactions. For murder, though it have no tongue, will speak with most miraculous organ. I'll have these players play something like the murder of my father before mine uncle. I'll observe his looks. I'll tend him to the quick. If he do blench, I know my course. The spirit that I have seen may be a devil, and the devil hath power to assume a pleasing shape. Yea, and perhaps out of my weakness and my melancholy, he is very potent, as he is very potent with such spirits, abuses me to damn me. I'll have grounds more relative than this. The play is the thing wherein I'll catch the conscience of the king. Sick. Okay. Um, it's so interesting the way that if you really just sort of bounce along at the rhythm of the thoughts, every time you sort of got to a place where I was like, huh, that's interesting. I wonder why then Shakespeare answers the question. Like every time I had a question where I was like, what is that? And then Shakespeare's like, this is why. Because the thing, it, the starting at the end, really, the, the thing of, ah, I have this idea. I'll do this. Of course, after all of the curses we just spit at Claudius, my brain is like, why Hamlet? Why do we need this? Why do we need confirmation? Is it not enough? And then the second after you think that Hamlet is like, because it could be the devil. Don't, don't forget. It could be the devil assuming a pleasing shape. I need grounds more relative than this. Okay, fine. I, I wondered, you just told me. I think also like, uh, I can't help but the, the speech that he says earlier on and like, he's so moved by this speech and so, so influenced by words. Yeah. I think also like the stuff that he says earlier where he's like Pyrrhus is caked in blood and gore like the visceral language of that speech yeah. must be frightening um yeah. to think about in a real way for you know a, a nerd <laughs> um yeah, yeah. Uh, and I just think the thing that I find so interesting about the speech is that I feel like so often people say like, this is where he like creates this plan. But mm -hmm. to me, it's sort of like, no, he already had this idea because he asks before, yeah. could you memorize these some lines if I were to put it in it? And so I think to me, 
and and Emma and I have sort of spoken about this, but I think what's so interesting about the speech to me is so often Hamlet's speeches start with him being really introspective and confused and then end with him being like, I've got to, like, it, it becomes big and wide. And this speech begins sort of big and wide. And he's like, this is like acting, man. How crazy. This guy's crying and he doesn't have any reason to. That's bananas. Like, could you imagine if he had if he was really suffering, you know, like I am, could you imagine if his father had died, you know, like my father? And then he sort of like starts to deflate and does the Hamlet thing where he just like absolutely spirals himself out of control. And I think it's like, and then it, and it rolls back out again at the end where he's just sort yeah. of like, okay, like this is too much. Let me like give myself something active to do. And that active thing is going to be confirming this information for myself. Like I have to do it scientific method. I'm a student. I have to use the scientific method. Totally. Um, That's so funny. That's so good. Yeah. Cause yeah, he, yeah, like, yeah. it's so interesting. Cause it's like, why would he believe a spirit? He's a scholar, you know, like it, it's like, why would I believe in what God said? I have to prove it to myself with facts. Well, what's so funny to me is that while you were doing it, what, what was in my mind besides, you know, a couple of, I mean, obviously things were whizzing past me in a way where I was like, Ooh, that image is interesting. That image is interesting. But what was in my mind was the text that you have on the like battlements all alone after the ghost disappears of, uh, you know, I'll wipe away all trivial font record, all saws, all whatever the text of, I am so moved by this. I'm going to destroy everything inside me that isn't this. But how can he, when he, all of his friends and like his favorite part about like being a young scholar appears at his doorstep. It's, it's just an, interesting it's to ex- me how, yeah, how far we are from that already. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like it's, it's, you know, it's temptation <laughs> to me, at least it feels like it's both, you know, the logical thing of like, well, I do, I should prove this, but also I don't want to leave all this behind. I love this, you know, like I love, I, 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 I want to like have fun and like go to the theater with my friends. Like, I don't want to leave, <laughs> I don't want to leave the thing that I'm good at, like my, my like intellectuality, my, my passion for, for stories. And, and um, I think you're also right that he takes violence really seriously. Like, like that he takes the idea of violence really seriously. And so the comfort of maybe not yet, because first this and the seriousness of it really could be the devil. That's an interesting point that that comes back in of like, I have to be sure. And this is how I know to prove it because to, there's nothing careless about the act. Like, I mean, the scientific method is a funny, is a, is a, a funny kind of epithet for it, but I think it's right of kind of like, we can't just go, I guess why I brought up the, you know, I'll wipe away all trivial fun record that speech of like, is that that is pure emotion in the aftermath of the event. And this is just enough distance removed that it tracks sort of psychologically. I think that thing of like, yeah, but I can't just kill him. I have to prove it. Yeah, I just wanted to talk about uh, just just for a sec the, the the idea of like proof because I think that's so important because I think it's easy for us as a modern audience to to forget how afraid people are of going to hell. That that is the worst possible thing in the entire universe that can happen to your soul because if you and, and for Hamlet in particular, if he goes to hell. He will not be reunited with his father, who he 
what he would believe to be, well, in purgatory right now, but that's a little unclear in itself. But eventually his father's going to be in heaven because if Hamlet avenges his father and is correct that it is a true vengeance, then they will both go to heaven and they can live in eternity together. So the sphere of hell is like, everyone in this play is terrified of hell. There isn't a single character who's not obsessed with dying and going to hell because it's just, it's just so terrible. And so I think Hamlet is like, he's incredibly active. I think he's, in, he's, he's, an, he's an active protagonist. He changes constantly as we're kind of talking about and how, how, how this speech has already come so far from his first one. And uh, he, he's always taking steps towards his eventual goal. He's just making sure he doesn't go to hell along the way. That's super helpful. That's super helpful. Because I do think that the, because it's a play with the supernatural in it, and it's obsessed with death and dying, the idea of the cosmology is so important to keep in our minds, because they had such a different cosmology than we do of like the idea of hell being a real place and heaven and purgatory being real places, or like real states. Yeah, that's super helpful. Julia, the only other things I wanted to put into the soup for this speech a little bit, just things that really hit my ear, Mm -hmm. is that I was thinking a lot about something you brought up when we spoke about act one about something I had never really thought of about the kind of feminizing of Hamlet kind of by himself and by the world, like the sort of what we might call feminine attributes of Hamlet. And then the words that really hit my ear in this speech are the words that he uses about himself. The word unpregnant, unpregnant of my cause is a crazy phrase. Yeah. It's wild. You know, and I was thinking (laughs) about unmanly grief and everything that Claudia said in act one, but unpregnant of my cause is really interesting because It did also, again, make me think of that speech that you have after the ghost that I just brought up of like this thing of I'm going to empty myself of me and then I'm going to be a vessel for this thing. Mm -hmm. That is a pregnancy. That is a kind of pregnancy. And that text sort of like the fact that that's the word that's used here is really interesting to me because it pinged in my kind of consciousness of like, that's what you want. Is that that's your frustration right now? That's what you want to be pregnant of your cause. It's also like, it's so interesting given the conversations that we've had about Ophelia and, uh, you know, we're yeah. going to get into this more obviously, but like mm-hmm. with what Isabel had said about like Rue being, you know, abortive. The pregnancy in the play. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's so, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Really this, this whole like act has been like weird conversations with Polonius and like, Oph- like joking about Ophelia. Like she's on the mind. Like it's, it's he's here, yeah. you know? yeah. Yeah. Um, And there's more, there's also, I mean, it also on the same, on a, on a similar tack, you use the words whore and drab to refer to yourself as well. And so even your self-hatred has a really distinctly feminine bent. For sure. He's like, I think Hamlet's such like a weirdly binary character. So it's like, it's fun when it, when it does get into like the like gray area (laughs) for lack of, you know? Yeah. The other thing I wanted to say, and this I mentioned to you before I remembered what I was going to say earlier, is that what is so weird about this act is to me the sort of like psychology of, you know, how you're like, if you feel bad, you should smile and you'll start to feel better, even sort of like against your will. And this whole idea that he's sort of he's spent the whole act doing this like antic disposition and then it sort of like bleeds it feels so much like it bleeds into how he actually feels and the like genuine excitement of the players being there and Rose and Guild being there. Yeah, I just think that that's this speech feels so different to me than all the other speeches, and just even in like some of the like scansion and yeah. like the the irregularity and like all there's so many feminine endings and like there's one line that has like t- 
12 or <laughs> something syllables in it and you're just like and, and like you know oh vengeance and you know and ha, ha and yeah. yeah you get all it, that you know, all that blank space for he- yeah for he- for hecuba you know like there's all this weird blank space and this incredibly long wild and whirling speech a lot it's of midline questions too and i love a midline question because it means you go on to immediately answer it yourself without a breath Mm-hmm. So the thing of had he the motive and the cue for passion that I have, he would drown the stage with tears. Like I love yeah. the the consistent the running away of the thoughts of question answer to the question as you keep going, you know. And I mean the only other thing I really that hit me that I wanted to kind of put in the pot there was like the way that Claudius creeps into the speech without you having to say his name. The fact that like he hasn't been on for ages. And you haven't talked about him for like a hot ass minute. And then as soon as it turns to you, like you said, into your father, into your situation, when we get to, it's such a weird turn. You almost miss it, except for what you go on to say, because you, when you, you're busy squooshing the thing from the context of the player's speech into your own context, that turn at, I should have fatted all the region kites with this slave's awful bloody body villain. Again, one line. It's like for a second, you're like, which slave? What? Who? And then you're like, oh, that bitch. And then you spend the next like million lines going this bitch. And we never say his name. Yeah. And, and like, I call him villain again. I think the other thing that's so interesting about Claudius in this speech is that for so long especially post ghost and stuff and he you know he's like i call the you know king first and he you know says no not for a king upon who's you know referring to his father mm. referring to his father always as the king but then at the end it's the plays the thing where and i'll catch the conscience of the king and it's sort of like the first real acknowledgement of it feels like he's using claudius's name for the first time even though he isn't because he's totally actually acknowledging that he is the king totally which is such a weird thing that's yeah. nice. Yeah, that's really interesting. That could that could provide a bunch of different opportunities depending on how you want it to play it, really, those final mm-hmm. words. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, nah, it's just sort of, you know, it feels like, to me, the choice is like, am I going to play this game? Like, am I going to let him, mm-hmm. am I going to acknowledge his, if, if I am to kill him and then I am going to acknowledge his kingship and then kill him, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> to me, it reads like, well, only in the context of now that this is a plot to murder you, fine i'll acknowledge your i'll acknowledge your status yeah and the whole the whole enterprise is getting more serious now so it feels sort of apt that it's it's a positioning a squaring up kind of feeling between you and the adversary right of like okay i'm here he's here move forward 